What will it avail you to take by force you may quickly have by love, or to destroy them that provide you food? What can you get by war when we can hide our provisions and fly to the woods, whereby you must famish by wronging us your friends? And why are you thus jealous of our loves, seeing us unarmed, and both do and are willing still to feed you? With that you cannot get but by our labors." Think you I am so simple not to know it is better to eat good meat, lie well and sleep quietly with my women and children, laugh and be merry with you, have copper, hatchets, or what I want being your friend, than be forced to fly from all to lie cold in the woods, feed upon acorns, roots, and such trash, and be so hunted by you, that I can neither rest, eat, nor sleep? But my tired men must watch, and if a twig but break, everyone crieth, There cometh Captain Smith. Then must I fly I know not whither, and thus with miserable fear end my miserable life, leaving my pleasures to such youths as you, which through your rash unadvisedness may quickly as miserably end, for want of that you never know where to find. Chief Powhatan, from... The General History of Virginia, New England, and the Summer Isles by John Smith. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same, or maybe you long to. This is the final stop on the Chesapeake Bay Our Numinous Nature mini-series, and this is a great way to end our little trip. This is an incredible interview. So let's do a little recap of all the stops we've made. First, we spoke with a fossil hunter, Paul Murdoch, and so we learned all about the creatures from 20 million years ago that lived in the bay. He was also a ghost hunter and told one of the best ghost stories I've ever heard. Then we spoke with Alpheus Tuning. He was a living his, he is a living historian and he told us all about the pirates of the bay and told some of his own ghost lore and experiences. Another amazing episode. Then I spoke with a folk artist and um, that episode is still unreleased. Um, it was very intense and very private. Uh, and personal. So I'm waiting to get permission if that's one that I'll be able to share in the future. After that, I spoke with Tom Horton, a renowned environmental columnist and nature writer, and perhaps one of the best living nature writers. And uh, he told us all about the state of the bay from beavers um, to his own experience um, kayaking through a monarch migration and reading an essay about the eel exodus 
um, from Appalachian streams all the way to the Sargasso, Sargasso Sea. Then I spoke with a waterman. I wouldn't be able to do a Chesapeake Bay tour without speaking to someone that works out on the water. So for that episode, we spoke with Captain Wade Murphy, and he told us about a lifetime of oyster dredging and going down with his ship in a bad storm, an incredible and harrowing tale. The last episode of the series was with Jay Meredith, and that episode came by asking the locals for their lore and for their history. And in that one, we explored the Greenbrier Swamp, the legends, the mysterious legends in that swamp, and we got into the heavier side of that region's history, which is slavery. And Jay very beautifully told, um, narrated the story of Harriet Tubman and her courageous adventure escaping that area. And at the very end of that episode, I asked Jay, well, what is the history of the tribes here? And Jay told us about this um, historical home in the area called the Hansel House. And they had a project where they, they called the Chacon Village, where they were building a Nanticoke longhouse. And one of the instrumental people to this project building a traditional longhouse was Daniel Firehawk Abbott. And that is today's guest. And it is, I'm really, um, so thankful that the podcast is starting to generate its own guests, as in one guest will um, reference me to the next guest. And that's exactly what's happened here. And I'm so thankful that this is who we're speaking to for the last episode of the series, because this entire time I've really wanted to hear about the pre-European contact Chesapeake Bay, who, what was going on, the history of the tribes, the culture of the tribes, what was going on here before the English showed up at Jamestown. And that's exactly what we're going to hear about today. And it's a long episode and an endlessly fascinating episode. Daniel um, does uh, living history, interpretive history um, presentations at Jamestown, the historic Jamestown. So we actually just went to visit a few months ago. And so there's the Jamestown settlement, which is more of like a tourist attraction where they have um, made, you know, they built kind of a living, it's, they call it a living history museum. So they've built like a replica of the fort. They've built a replica of a 1600 ship. They've built a replica of a native village. And, you know, it's very touristy. That's as a little kid in Northern Virginia, we went there for field trips. You know, it is educational. It is interesting, but it is nothing compared to historic Jamestown, which is a few minutes down the road. Historic Jamestown is the actual archaeological site of the Jamestown fort from 1608, I believe it is it's a much more mature destination. And there's an archaeological museum there that is completely filled with artifacts that have been found, that have been excavated. And the site wasn't even rediscovered until the 1990s. I guess people were uncertain where exactly the Jamestown Fort was. And so when you go visit, it's still an open archaeological dig site where you'll, you'll if you go during their normal hours, there are archaeologists working on the site and the museum. And when you go there, 
uh, we had a very, there was a heavy mood. It was, it was very heavy. We got there a few hours, you know, just like an hour before it shut. And there was a heavy mood. And when you go visit that archeological museum, I mean, one of the most haunting th- things they have on display is they have uh, a young girl's skull because there was a period in the Jamestown's history called the starving years where basically they were unable to create their own food. Um, they had kind of just sheltered themselves against the tribes and were just withering away. And they resorted to cannibalism. And this skull is one of the main proofs of that. They have her skull, some unknown girl, Jane Doe. Um, her skull is on display. She was like 13 or something. And the skull is covered in little marks from probably knives, but it's pretty haunting. And so historic Jamestown, I can't suggest highly enough if you're visiting the area. If you're coming through Williamsburg, you're coming through uh, the Chesapeake Bay region, historic Jamestown would be an incredible destination. And as you'll hear, on Saturdays, you can come and see Daniel doing his interpretive lectures, his immersive lectures. And he does them in full period regalia with clothes and with um, articles that he's made. And he told me and showed me after this podcast, he showed me, uh, for instance, a quiver that he had built based on a painting by John White from the 1500s. There's a painting of a native warrior standing with bow and quiver. And Daniel used that as inspiration to try to figure out how would that quiver have been made back then. And he showed me a whole bunch of incredible things that he's made from uh, napped um, blades to an axe that he made. And he showed me an incredible um, clay pot that he made, a cooking vessel that he's cooked with. And uh, he told me it was made out of palmonkey clay. And I'm not quite sure what he meant by that, but what I think that he means is it's from the Palmonkey River, which is a tributary of the York River. And um, there's also a Palmonkey Reservation that is still in existence, which blew me away. I had no idea there were um, Native American reservations on the East Coast. And there's one, you know, that's one just right here in Virginia. And it was established in 1646. So I'm wondering if perhaps the clay that he meant came from that reservation. So I remember as a kid through school field trips, visiting Williamsburg, visiting Jamestown, the settlement version. And I don't know how they did it, but somehow, as I was saying, I was saying this in the last podcast episode, somehow the way that American history was taught to school kids in elementary school, middle school, and high school is they made it so uninteresting, which is like stupefying to me now as one can study on their own and find the sources and the books and speak to people. I mean, this is some of the most amazing history that's ever happened on earth. Um, it, endlessly fascinating. And, you know, this episode is just going to be hopefully the beginning of me seeking out, um, learning about different tribes histories. And, um, I guess I'm a, I'm actually a little embarrassed that I know so little about the East coast tribes. 
I started learning a lot about Native Americans in college on my own um, through reading Cormac McCarthy. That was the entry point. I, I went in, when I went, got to college, I literally could hardly read. And I'm being very serious. I could hardly read and write. And I started, that college is when I started reading all the time, incessantly, and teaching myself how to write. Um, and it's, I, I read Cormac McCarthy, who's considered perhaps one of the best living American writers. And he wrote a, a very powerful and very extremely dark and brutal book called Blood Meridian. And it's an epic. And it's about, um, it's it's a novel, but it's about um, real people who were these degenerate, like borderline criminals who um, were scalp hunters. And they would endlessly get in conflicts with, um, you know, fighting different tribes out West, collecting scalps and selling the scalps to local governments and being paid for them. So incredibly dark. And that kind of opened me up into learning all about the Western tribes. So then I started reading about the Comanche, learning about um, the the epic leader, Quenna Parker, and learning about Chief Joseph with the Nez Pierce. And um, learning about Crazy Horse, who was a Lakota. And then I got into Edward Curtis, the famous photographer from the early 1900s, who went to J.P. Morgan and said, hey, please fund my project. And J.P. Morgan gave him money for decades to basically go on an odyssey of photographing all the remaining tribes. And Edward Curtis has been... Um, a little, um, I don't know if controversial, but he's been a little bit attacked for doctoring some of the images and kind of making some of the images, um, you know, using props or um, having um, certain people wear things that they wouldn't actually wear. And yet the images are absolutely incredible and they're so beautiful. And there's an incredible book about Edward Curtis, an incredible documentary about Edward Curtis. Uh, I highly recommend looking at some of those photographs if you've never seen them. And so anyways, I spent like 10 years learning about the Western tribes and Western American history. And I'm a little embarrassed to not know very much about Eastern history, Eastern Native American history and the tribes and to realize that it's like twice as old is 200 plus years older than the Western history, equally as fascinating, equally as tragic. And there's so much to know. So I'm really excited for this episode. I'm excited for recording more episodes like this. You know, I would love to do one about the Cherokee in Appalachia. Um, I would love to do one about the tribes in the Shenandoah Valley. I mean, th these are endless topics. And so today, we got what I was really praying for, which is hearing not only about Daniel's tribe, because he is Nanticoke, but also hearing about the Powhatan chiefdom, which was really just basically a huge portion of the Chesapeake Bay and Virginia was under Chief Powhatan hearing about that and getting a little glimmer of what life would have been like to be one of those people here in America, pre-European contact, 
I, I actually know you'll enjoy this episode because this one is awesome and epic. And a little detail that I have to add because it makes this episode all the more magical is that the entire time Daniel was smoking from his tobacco pipe. And that adds so much extra character to this whole episode. And you've got to stick around for his story about the marsh lights because they are incredibly mysterious. Here, we're about, um, oh, I guess 20 minutes uh, down the back roads, uh, west it would be, of a little town called Surrey, uh, Virginia, uh, which is almost directly across uh, 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 the James from Jamestown Island. Uh, So I think that'll give people a pretty good idea, Uh, Jamestown, of course, being very close to Williamsburg, uh, Virginia. We like it because it's a lot more rural. Uh, it's extremely the rural. Over other here. side, uh, the Williamsburg side of the river. It's like two different worlds. Yeah. So I, as you know, I camped over at uh, Chipoke, uh, Chipokes, Chipokes, Chipokes uh, Plantation State Park. Yeah. And um, I didn't bring anything to eat, and I realized I had to take a ferry across the James over to Jamestown Williamsburg to get dinner and get food. Oh my gosh, I wish I wish uh, that we had communicated because there's No, co- no, I I enjoyed taking the ferry. Oh good. And as I told well, you, that's yeah, a good trip. As I told you, you drive up, you drive onto the ferry, but you can get out and you can go up on the deck. Yeah. And I told you I was envisioning what the colonists as they approached Jamestown, what they would have been seeing because you are literally going straight for Jamestown, both the reenactment kind of touristy Jamestown and then the actual archaeological site. You can see them both and you're going right into it. Which is where I do my presentation. Which is where you do your presentation. Not a Jamestown settlement, which is more tourist oriented. Yes. uh, But uh, historic Jamestown. Which is incredible. Yeah, where the actual fort site is. And um, my girlfriend and I just visited it about uh, two months ago, and uh, and the archaeological museum there is yes. incredible. Yeah. They have open dig areas where archaeologists are in the process of digging up artifacts and the, the structure of all these buildings. So, anyways, this is a bit of an intro. But well, you must come. You must come on a Saturday or a Sunday because on the weekends the in, interpretive staff is there in full dress uh, with um, displays. Okay, of items that um, would have been found during the period, so that people can get a much better idea of what they're looking at in the arcarium or the museum. Mm. Uh, you actually see the f- items as they would have appeared uh, in daily life mm. and utilized uh, during that time. Mm. So we're in full dress, and we uh, we like to bring it to life. Uh, I like to say, bring it to life because we discuss uh, the interactions of uh, the two cultures and not long after three cultures. And uh, a few people realize it wasn't just the English there, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, the French were there, the Spanish, uh, well, not the Spanish because they were at war, but uh, the Dutch and uh, even some Swedes. Uh, <laughs> it's a long story. We won't go into that, but uh, we like to bring it to life. So... Uh, that's what, uh, this has been going on for about 10 years now, 
And uh, I feel very fortunate to be an integral part of that. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I've read you. articles about you and I've seen photographs of you and you know, you look incredible when you're doing the whole interpretive. I appreciate that. Um, the whole inter so I did an episode about pirates of the Chesapeake Bay and I uh, spoke with someone who they call themselves a living historian. They they wear yes. period clothing, living et history, cetera. Yes. But mm -hmm. your the the term that I'm hearing is interpretive Native American history? Yeah, we interpret uh, the uh, culture, the cultures. Mm -hmm. I, I focus on native culture mm -hmm. of this region, okay? Uh, a Powhatan or a Powhatan, if you wish. Uh, because, well, even though I'm not Powhatan, uh, my uh, people lived on the east side of the Chesapeake Bay, mm -hmm. what is now the eastern shore of Maryland, mm -hmm. Delaware, because the southern tip, what is Virginia today on the, on the Delmarva Peninsula, uh, was uh, in Powhatan's chiefdom. Oh, really? Okay, uh, two primary tribes, uh, Smith recorded. Um, the, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> now I'm thinking of uh, Virginia tribes, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm, I'm blanking out, uh, oh my gosh. Yeah, well, there were two tribes on the shore. And they butted right up against our chiefdom, which was the Nanticoke chiefdom of allied tribes, Paramount Chief, just like Powhatan set up. Ours was very similar, but much older. And we, uh, the lifestyles were similar, although one thing I want to bring out in this whole conversation uh, is that um, Native cultures, uh, even just a couple of rivers away, uh, were very diverse. Uh, very unique uh, in in many different in multi, multiple aspects. So, um, so I wanted to a lot of things I want to say in this episode. You know, when I'm in school learning about American history, the way they taught it to school kids was so lame when I was a kid. And I just wanted to say that Native Americans was just one thing, which is so idiotic. Because, like you're saying right now, every tribe. Every region is a completely different culture. And so today, I'm the why I'm so interested to speak with you is one, your work with Jamestown, the history. I do want to know about the general landscape of the tribes of the Tidewater. And then I want to learn how your tribe, I want to learn um, what makes your tribe unique. What is the culture of the Nanticoke? Hmm. So I'm interested in all of this stuff. Somewhat similar. Okay. So yep, we're just across the bay. Mm -hmm. you know, one has to keep in mind, uh, and the bay, even though it's, well, yeah, it varies as far as width, but um, at the mouth, it's 11 to 13 miles wide, and then in other places uh, further up the bay, it's uh, probably five or six miles wide. Mm -hmm. And um, it varies considerably. But one has to keep in mind that uh, before European contact, uh, we were paddling across the bay quite uh, routinely. Uh, the Nanticoke, the Poatan, uh, the Piscataway, Kanoe uh, tribes, or chiefdom, actually, uh, another chiefdom. There were five around the bay. Uh, we're interacting con constantly, okay? Few people realize that we had log dugout canoes, mm -hmm. and archaeologically speaking, they've been found. Coastal margin, they're generally going to be bald cypress, and uh, they can be up to uh, 50, 60 feet in length. Wow. Uh, you want a story? Go. Quickly? Go for it. Uh, Spanish journals, 1546. Mm. 
Okay, this is uh, one of the first recorded contacts, one of the earliest recorded contacts. Uh, was either a, uh, an English or a French uh, trader. Hmm. Uh, you can tell the difference, of course, between traders and slavers. You must keep in mind that both were sailing the Atlantic coast from hmm. the early 1500s on. Uh, first, the, the, the Portuguese and Spanish and later Dutch, English, French won their slice of the New World around mm-hmm. the mid-1500s. People don't realize that uh, by the time people arrived at Jamestown, the English, uh, that's 100 years down the road after mm-hmm. first contact with Europeans on the Atlantic coast. Let's go back to log dugouts, the size, and this, the Spanish journals. Well, a ship, the French or English, the, the journals aren't, aren't really clear, but it was an English cabin boy on the ship that later in adult life told the Spanish this story, and they recorded it. Uh, primarily because you, you, most people don't realize that by the early 1500s, uh, Spain had claimed all of North America as La Florida. Mm. Okay? Mm. So this is... The whole North American continent Mm. is the Florida. Uh, Anyhow, back to log dugouts. Okay. Um, Yeah, this ship is caught, as it reads, in a great tempest. And uh, she's forced to seek safe harbor from the storm. She finds it at 37 degrees north latitude, which is running right through the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. Mm. All right. So she pulls in. She anchors the very next day. Now, this is happenstance. The ship just shows up. Mm. It's not planned. The very and Telegraph, okay, how quickly it moves. The ship is approached by... Did you say th- moccasin telegraph? telegraph. <laughs> so it's just communication. It's faster than computers. It's the native communication base, okay? Via foot Word travel. of mouth, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, because we always had runners mm. you know, back and forth, mm. uh, relaying messages for the paramount chiefs and mm. the district chiefs and the, and the town chiefs. And it's a hierarchy, okay, in a chiefdom. And we can get into that if you want to. Yes. But the ship is approached by 30 to 40 log dugout canoes. It's pretty intimidating. The very next day. Okay. <laughs> Each canoe bearing 20 to 30 bowmen mm. per canoe. Mm. Now, that's paddlers carrying bows. Okay. And they're all uh, paddling in unison. Well, break that down. 20 to 30 paddlers per canoe Mm -hmm. is 10 to 15 men on each side of the canoe paddling Mm -hmm. in unison. Mm -hmm. Kind of like some of the South Pacific, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. or the Inuit uh, whaling boats or whatever. But these are log dugouts. Keep in mind, these logs come from a virgin forest. Okay. John Smith recorded uh, some of the uh, bald cypress used primarily in making the log dugouts here on the coast uh, at, at... up to 16 feet in circumference at the base. Wow. Easily 50 to 60 feet before they even start branching straight as arrows. Wow. You can drop them by the water line uh, on cross pieces and then start to work them out. Okay. Each bearing 20 to 30 paddlers. Trade was struck immediately mm. for 1,000 hides. So not wow. only did they just show up, you know, to trade, mm-hmm. uh, they weren't just showing up out of uh, curiosity. 
they are showing up to trade. They had a purpose. So had they done it before? Oh, yeah. Mm. They came well Which equipped tribe to are trade. you talking about right now? Oh, it could have been from the Western Shore. It could have been from okay. the Eastern Shore. Okay. I don't know where the ship anchored. What it's kind of pelts were they trading? Exactly where she was anchored. What pelts were they trading? Uh, they uh, Smith mentions Martin. Oh, not Smith, but the, the Spanish accounts mention Martins. Huh, now, there are no martins this far south. No. They're up in the boreal forests, mm. okay, uh, of North America. Uh, so, but the English are familiar with them. And maybe they weren't familiar with these animals that uh, whose hides were being traded. We think probably beaver, otter, mm. muskrat. Maybe mink, uh, too, because uh, the mink is oh, a weasel. Oh, definitely minks here. There's a yeah. weasel like the martins are. In the mid-Atlantic, yes, we have weasels and, and uh, minks. Now... Uh, Trade was struck for a thousand of these pelts, if you will, in exchange for cloth shirts, mm. metal knives, mm. and metal fish hooks, specifically mm. written in the Spanish journals. Wow. They part company afterwards, go their separate ways. <laughs> Europeans aren't here to colonize yet. Mm. They're here to trade. Mm. They're going back and forth across the Atlantic because the New World is a wealth of mm. natural resources. Mm. And you have to keep in mind that in Europe... They depleted everything. By the early 1500s, after the Black Death, mm. I don't know, what is that, 11th, 12th century? Mm. Um, Two-thirds of the population wiped out in Europe. Then the population over the next several hundred years explodes mm. in Europe. At the same time, by the early 1500s, they've cut down, wiped out well over 90% of their forests. They have trapped and hunted out well over 90% of their fur-bearing mammals. Mm. And the population has exploded now. How are the people going to survive? What are we going to do with all these people? Mm. And what they don't teach us in school, mm. which I think would make it somewhat interesting, mm. that's the beginning of the great age of exploration to find new places to settle, colonize, mm. and exploration and colonization. Mm. So thus it begins. Mm. And the great age of, of scientific advancements too, mm. uh, to further promote mm -hmm. all this exploration and colonization and trade goods and all this good stuff. Uh, so it begins. And of course, the new world was an integral part of that. Uh, now, I read, now, is Nantuck... I may be getting off the beaten track here. No, so, that's fine. Yeah. It's, it's supposed to be just informal like oh, this. Oh, good. Um, now, I like that. is Nanticoke, is that how I say it? Uh, Nanticoke, as of, uh, we, uh, we know around the mid to late 1800s, uh, we agreed uh, those remnants of the people who stayed behind, we can get into that if you wish, mm -hmm. what happened to the Nanticoke people I would eventually. Like uh, but uh, there were remnants, and uh, anyhow, there was a transition uh, from the word nentigo. Nentigo. Uh, N-E-N-T-E-G-O, the mm. E uh, with the little slanting whatever, nentigo. Mm. Uh, lo loosely translated people the tidal waters or mm. tide water. And, um, I've read that. That's very interesting. Nanticoke uh, later. Okay. That's okay. We think that came from a fishing village originally recorded by Smith, Nantuckack, mm. Uh So I read that the the I started reading. So there's a Nantuckack tribal um, website. So it has a little mm. bit of history. I started reading a bunch of that, but then I was like, I'd rather hear it from you than know and know it in advance. But I did see that the Nantuckack were considered 
master traders. Oh, yes. And witches. Witches? Oh, yes. Let's hear it. <laughs> I want to hear about traders and witches. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. They were feared by, by others by, uh, by the for other their tribes? ability to make and utilize poisons. Wow. Which made them witches, I suppose. Uh, wow. But they were they were feared. You didn't want to really insult or get on the bad side of Nanticoke people. Wow. They might not be around very long. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we were quite well versed in, the, in 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 poisons like water hemlock and mm. other poisons. Now, poisons can be beneficial, mm. of course, especially in ancient times, to boost the immune system if used mm. correctly. But uh, yeah, it's. Uh, and also, uh, Smith noted excellent merchants, or today, merchants. Merchants, yeah, right? that's what I meant by the merchants. traders. So we were good traders, and why wouldn't we be? Mm -hmm. Like other peoples here in the mid-Atlantic region, well, look where we're at. Mm. We're right smack in the middle of the Atlantic seaboard, to the north, to the south, the Gulf to the south, the Great Lakes to the north, copper, shell, mica from the Carolinas, mm. uh, Good flints from the mid nearby Midwest, just mm. on the other side of the Appalachians, uh, from the flint quarries. The people were coming here from the inland regions, bringing that stuff mm. to trade in exchange for things people in the inland regions wanted. You know, you want what I have, and I want what you have, because we live in two discrete environments totally. that afford different luxuries at the time. Ours was coastal shell hmm. for making shell beads, discs, pendants, hmm. um, mother of pearl. Hmm. Uh, the, uh, the Atlantic uh, world shell, the... Uh, oh. Welks, the Welk shells. Hmm. You cut discs and, 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 and beads, hmm. three types of beads. Are the heavier uh, from the central columnella worked in, and beads cut from uh, called uh, runtees. Hmm. Then you have the barrel shaped, uh, what most people uh, know, uh, which was early currency in America uh, until the Dutch started manufacturing it, and then it lost its value. But uh, that would be uh, peak, hmm. uh, wampum peak, peak shell in Algonquin, wampum uh, beads. Hmm. Okay, so shell beads and uh, mother of pearl, beautiful stuff. I have some if you want to take a picture later. Uh, that's handmade. So why were these things so valuable? It's for for uh, decor and for clothing, uh, personal adornment. Adornment, uh, yeah, primarily personal adornment, but also greatly valued. So it brought uh, high trade value. Hmm. You know, people inland can't get it. These of things, uh, these shells have been found all the way out past the Mississippi River mm. and in great amounts. Mm. Uh, we also had the flat disc-shaped uh, beads from uh, not only uh, whelk shell, but also clam shell and mm. also uh, mussel shell. And they're finding a lot of those, mussel and, uh, at Jamestown, digging them up. Uh, but uh, shell beads, small amounts of sea salt. Hey, and uh, hey, saltwater fish don't taste like freshwater fish. Mm. So people love the taste of saltwater fish inland, in, inland. And also think about smoked crab meat, smoked <sighs> shellfish, oysters, clam, mussel, packed in rawhide parfletch bags and wow. transported. Incredible. They'll last up to six months. Incredible. Okay. Uh, 
so you have these things uh, being traded. Uh, traders want that because, boy, in their trade routes, they can clean up. Their so, trade routes ex extend hundreds of miles, and they overlap. So what would the Nanticoke or other Tidewater tribes, what would they be getting from more inland tribes? Oh, my gosh. Uh, the copper from the Great Lakes, okay. the uh, mica from the Carolinas, shell from the Gulf Coast we don't have here in the mm. Atlantic, uh, Queen Conk and other shell. Um, I forgot to mention the uh, here we do have marginellas, which are often found stitched to larger articles. Um, Powhatan's mantle, um, some bags taken from the Powhatan and uh, by the way, the early artifacts of, of Native American people here on the East Coast, you're not going to see in American museums. Hmm. All that stuff was transported back to European oh. museums. So yeah, for your listeners, if you want to see very early Native artifacts, you go to European museums, not American. Hmm. American museums are going to display um, Native American uh, artifacts from the 18th century on hmm. to modern times. That's generally what you're going to see. Uh, so, uh, I'm sorry, your question again. I don't know. I don't want to get but off this the is a great, track. No, this is awesome. Okay. I think, how about, um, can you paint a picture of pre-European contact, what the Chesapeake Bay would have been like? Obviously, when you look into this, immediately you see the Powhatan Confederacy. Um, can you describe what that was and... Just kind of what was going on sure. with the people here? I'll attempt to. Yeah. I'm sure, obviously, that's going to be incredibly complex, and you can pick where in history you want to start. I'll try to be as brief as possible and still get a few of the major points mm -hmm. in for you so uh, your listeners might uh, be able to develop a picture. I'm going to start out by saying it was a veritable paradise, mm. Okay, uh, compared to what you see and experience today. Mm. First of all, you could see the sky at night, mm. okay, and look into the sky mm. because it was complete darkness. And you see some of the pictures out west or in the more remote areas of North America. That's what the sky would have been like on the Atlantic coast, you know, the Milky Way just mm. hitting you in the face. And, perfectly clear in layers. It was a paradise because Europeans did record uh, some good facts about it when they first arrived because they're interested in the natural resources and the wealth of natural resources. So we have that. And they wanted to promote further colonization to attract mm -hmm. people to the new world to colonize. So they played it up really good too. Mm -hmm. But people like... Uh, uh, Strachey Smith at Jamestown, uh, Andrew White, who sailed up the Potomac with the Maryland uh, colonists when they first arrived, uh, 1634. Uh, they wrote things. They, they talked, and earlier Roanoke, you know, the attempts there, and Thomas Harriet and others are writing about uh, the land. So we do have this picture. Basically speaking, let's uh, start with the air that's sweet-scented and, and unpolluted, okay? Fresh air, mm. all right? Uh, sweet-scented from all the plants blooming throughout the year. Uh, we're talking about waters that it's recorded. You could look over the side of the boat, uh, and this is including the bay and all its tributaries. Uh, <sighs> and see 30 feet to the bottom. Uh, 
and well, watch that's astonishing. The, and in the brackish and salt areas, watch the beds of eelgrass waving in the tidal currents mm. at 30 feet. Yeah. It's, you can't see four to four, six feet today. Can't it's see hard. six inches. Yeah. Well, at times, yes, you're right. Because of the siltation mm. and, uh, and pollution mm. uh, that's dumped into our waterways, which has caused our waterways here around the bay, especially um, tobacco farming and colonial times and all that. Uh, all our waterways now are much broader mm. and shallower because of siltation. Mm. Um, like the James, right at Jamestown Island. The shoreline was 80 yards further out on each side of the James when the fort was built. Mm. And displayed the characteristics I just mentioned. Uh, also, they thought they could drink the water there because the salt wedges, of course, with fresh water runoff in the earlier part of the year, not so much later in the year. So the salt wedges move up and down the, the tributaries. And they arrive in uh, in April and May, and they can drink the water at Jamestown Island. Mm. But later in the summer, there's not as much freshwater runoff. The salt wedge moves further up the river, becomes brackish, mm. and they can't drink the water. But they do drink the water, and many of them die from actually drinking uh, brackish water. Mm. Getting back to the land. Mm -hmm. oh, it's mentioned in the early uh, journals uh, the colonists, I won't get into all the colonists, but just the facts are that the forests were virgin mm -hmm. before they started cutting the timber, which was immediately. Mm -hmm. And uh, many of these trees, it's written, were so huge in these forests of the eastern woodlands that four men holding hands, arms outstretched, could not get around the trunks of the trees. They're pillars. Huge pillars. Want a good campsite for the evening as you're making your way through the forest? You've got hollow trees everywhere. Mm. Imagine a tree that four men holding hands, arms outstretched, can't get around. It's hollow. Mm. Go inside, sleep four to six men, build a fire at the entrance with a reflector, and <laughs> you've, oh you're, you've got camp for the night. Wow. Uh, anyhow. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that here on the East Coast. Yeah, plus you have snags you can get under, too, that are that big. But generally, the forest is very open because the leaf canopy above your head, 80 to 150 feet, it said, above your head, was so thick that sunlight could hardly penetrate it. So not enough light can get under these huge trees. It's like a cathedral with pillars of wood supporting uh, a leaf canopy over your head and... Not enough light for plants to grow underneath. You have some low-light plants, like some hollies and dogwoods maybe in places, and some rhododendrons and laurels. Mm. But Smith himself at Jamestown writes, mm. one could easily gall uh, gallop a horse through this forest and uh, not be uh, your... your um, not have anything obstruct your, your travel mm -hmm. until you get to a creek or a river, he said. <laughs> okay? Andrew White, 1634, Father Andrew White, wrote in his journal, one could easily drive a wagon drawn by four horses through these forests unencumbered. Uh, unencumbered. I mean, it's a astonishing. Hmm? It's astonishing. Because oh, now just our woods open. are just so... This is without roads. Full of paths. briars and everything, you know? Oh, it's our astonishing. forests are matchsticks today. 
They're overgrown. It's all secondary growth. And I, I we don't get to appreciate so, uh, some small tracks in the Great Smokies and a few in yep. other states, but very small. Uh, and the spirit of those forests is unbelievably mm. powerful. Mm. You feel it. Mm. It pervades your senses when you're among these trees. They're mm. very ancient. They're mm. very wise. They're living beings. Mm-hmm. We think, most people think of trees as just trees. Native people often refer to them as standing people, mm. as are all the species on this planet, people. They're, they're four-leggeds, the wingeds, the no-leggeds, the many-leggeds. They're people. They're neither above us nor below us. They are essential. Mm. They uh, were placed here by the Creator, um, some say, to provide for us and to teach us mm. how to live our lives. Uh, but they're people nevertheless. They grow, they reproduce, they, including the plants, have fluid moving through their veins as we do. They just don't live their lives as we do. Okay, I, I've read that some <laughs> trees will mother their their children. Well, they communicate mm-hmm. and, and they and feed yes. them through the root system and, and through the mycelium and all that. Indeed, and they do. And science today has uh, just recently uh, supported that again. Uh, of course, native people have known this for mm-hmm. countless generations, thousands of years, um, because we were integral with the land. We were integral with with all who live upon the land uh, because they were essential and and they still are uh, to our survival, our well-being. The water, the land, ah, I can just envision Mm. in my mind what it must have been like here. And a lot of people think because someone once said a squirrel could start at the Atlantic coast and travel to the western coast without... um, uh, ever touching ground? Mm. No, <laughs> no. First of all, native people here in the eastern woodlands were farmers. Mm-hmm. We had been farming the land since back to the ice age, with uh, uh, nurturing the growth of seed, nut, uh, fruit-producing native species. But then, uh, just over four thousand years ago, archaeologically speaking. The first cultigens, a garden variety vegetable seeds, start arriving from Mexico, Central South mm. America, where they had been nurtured all the way back to the Ice Age, tropical, subtropical. And traders bring the seeds, and it fans out through North America because it's cooler here. Mm. More northern, takes time for those plants to acclimate. And uh, new species are developed along the way. And by the time Europeans arrive here, 4,000 years have already passed. This was a patchwork of forest and field, fallow field, fields under cultivation around all the villages, which it's uh, supported by archaeologists and archaeologically speaking, along around the Chesapeake Bay, mm-hmm. every tributary, creek, river, whatever, uh, and inland uh, in North America, especially here, villages were as close as every half mile to a mile along every waterway. So I told so last night I camped out and I told you the campsite had a little library where you could exchange a book. Turns out one of those books was the Wonderful. Jamestown letters. So I for 3 hours in my tent I was reading um you know the written account of the first few days here in this general area by the Jamestown crew and they're saying exactly what you're saying that they're nonstop they're coming in contact with people and as they're invited to go to these villages 
they're talking about walking by incredibly impressive fields or, um, you know, corn fields yes. and whatnot. Oh, yeah. So what sorts of plants were the different tribes growing? I know corn is one of them. What are some other ones that they were, what was the agriculture like? Well, once they weren't growing, uh, archaeologically, um, the tomato originates in North America. Uh, the, the potatoes, including the sweet potato, uh, all this in Mexico, mm. Central, South America originally, never made it this far north, mm. potatoes and tomatoes. But what did make it north starting just over 4,000 years ago, and it'll be pushed back as time passes and more mm -hmm. is, is known, uh, you see, because Native people will tell you, we have always been here. Mm -hmm. Science can say what it wants. It has to prove everything. Uh, but we will tell you, we've always been here. The Creator placed us upon this mm -hmm. great turtle island called mm -hmm. North America today and gave yes. us dominion over it. And when we said, but Creator, how are we going to live our lives? We've never been here. You place us here. How, what are we to do? Mm -hmm. And the Creator says, you will watch the plants and animals. I place them here first. They have been here much longer than you. You watch them. You listen. You, they will teach you how to live your lives. Mm. And indeed, we did. Mm. Yeah, one reason why we're so intimate uh, with them, and still are today to some degree. Um, I live in two worlds. I was born in the European-based world, mm. assimilation, all that, over the last four or 500 years. Mm. Uh, but I also try to touch upon as closely as I can the the ancient world, mm. the prehistoric world. Yeah. Anyhow, here are some of the species that were being grown here. Uh, pardon me. Just over 4,000 years ago, archaeologically, uh, if the first hard-shelled squashes begin to arrive, the gourds, mm. and not just one species, but several, uh, for their seeds, protein, fat-rich, uh, and good containers from hard-shelled gourds. Sure, okay? sure. Cool. For any number, dry storage, uh, liquid storage, whatever. Uh, then about, uh, and all this overlaps, okay? Then the, the softer squashes, both summer and winter, bush and vine, uh, squashes, including the pumpkin, start arriving, mm. many species. And we start growing, cultivating those. Uh, then overlapping about 2,500 years ago or so. Uh, so squashes are first. And slowly but surely, we have beans starting to arrive. Mm, black beans, speckled mm. beans, mm. Uh, pinto. Um, you like lima beans? Mm-hmm. Lima mm -hmm, beans, mm -hmm. uh, Lima, Peru, okay, mm. where all this originates. And so um, many species of beans. Then about 1,000, 1,500 years ago, we start to see, uh, archaeologists start to see various species of corn, mm. flower or dent corns. Smith, um, Thomas Harriet, Smith, Strachey at Jamestown, they get really into it mm. because food is important to the Europeans. Mm -hmm. They want to start growing this stuff. They're not mm -hmm. very good at it mm -hmm. uh, initially. But uh, anyhow, 12 to 15 foot tall corn, wow. dent corns made into flour primarily. Um, two to four ears per stalk. Two to 400 uh, kernels per ear. They actually count their kernels. Mm. 
you have flint or hominy corn, um, which is the multicolored uh, or different yep. colored corn you're, you're, most people are familiar with, uh, Indian corn, if you will, uh, five, six feet tall. Hmm. I've grown all these in gardens, so I can speak uh, to you a little more intelligently about it. Good stuff, pretty. Uh, and then uh, uh, popcorn, hmm. of course. Three primary groups of corn, different species. Sunflowers, uh, several species of sunflower for seed. We have a native sunflower here called, uh, yeah, most people are familiar with sunchokes or Jerusalem artichokes. Of course, I have some it's in my yard. Native to North America, I've got a patch right back here. Beautiful. Okay. Yeah. Delicious tubers. I haven't tried it yet. Oh my gosh. I know I gotta um, do it. Starchy sweet, mm. slightly nutty. Mm. Okay, I like to grate them up and, and simmer them into a gruel in the morning. Mm. But you can prepare them any way you do a potato. Okay, All right? excellent. Really good. I and will good try that. for you. Better mm -hmm. than potatoes. Uh, more nutritious. Um, you ask most people where the potato originated. This Ireland. Okay, it's, because it's of the Peru potato or famine. something, isn't it? Is huh? it in the mountains of Peru or something? Yes, it was the mm. Inca primarily. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Tomatoes the uh, in Mexico. Okay. So the as you paint, as you paint this image of this uh, agricultural cultures, clearly that also means that the the um, cultures or the villages were very they're quite permanent. They're, these are not the semi permanent. Semi permanent. Yeah, we went uh, starting with uh, horticulture. Mm. Okay, when it really started getting into full swing. Of course, when we're nurturing the growth of, of seed, nut, fruit-producing native species all the way back to when the climate warmed enough after the ice age for them to grow, uh, we've always been doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, but nurturing the growth around the villages of these plants. Then when the seeds from Mesoamerica, South America mm. start to arrive by water and land, Tra traders' routes are generally circular in nature, and they overlap, and traders mm. hand off, and eventually, you know, things go from coast to coast in North America and continent to continent. People don't realize that, all right? Uh, I'm off the beaten track. I was just asking, um, because... <laughs> The, having these uh it's not age i think i started going senile about 19 well this is all mm -hmm. amazing stuff thank but, you but what i'm uh i guess my question was because these are agricultural communities then clearly uh, they're more permanent villages yes. or at least semi-permanent thanks Philippe. and less nomadic than say the um the midwestern tribes and exactly such. who lived in teepees we didn't right so you're <laughs> wooden homes here let's talk about those structures too okay but Starting with the advent of expanded horticulture, mm. you're going to have to clear land uh, to plant crops. Mm. That's very labor intensive. Once you clear land, you want to stick around for a while right. until you exhaust the natural re uh, the, the minerals in the soils and mm. other natural resources. Then you let the earth rest. You already have another village uh, built, ready to move into on an ideal places, okay? Sometimes villages over time are built on top of other villages. Um, archaeologists find that. Let the earth rest, build another, go mm -hmm. back to the same place. Uh, but in the meantime, you move into the new village, you have lots of natural resources, a multivaried environment where you can get all kinds of, you have much more selection of uh, 
plant and animal resources, mineral resources, uh, for food, medicine, utilitarian materials mm. uh, to build and make things. Mm, usually in fresh brackish and, and freshwater areas, the larger villages. Okay, you clear land. You're going to want to stick around. Your houses are going to have to be built more semi-permanent. 10 to 20 years, let's say. Mm. 10 to 20 That's years about the on the average. Of the, of the buildings. Yes. Fascinating. And easily maintenanced. Okay, I, I wanted to ask that. So well, I live in a cabin in the Blue Ridge Mountains. We have no AC. You know, in the summer, you just got the doors open. When it's raining, things are getting a little humid. I'm wondering with these native structures, are they, you know, how do you keep mold out? Are they like changing, um, are they, you know, changing the reeds? And, like, how are they maintaining the structures? Good question. Well, having built three such structures, which uh, were museum quality, I might add. I and didn't use nails. I didn't use wire. I used natural materials. And to about a half uh, using stone tools mm. uh, and bone tools <laughs> uh, to do the construction. Uh, which I can show you some of uh, the tools. But, uh, okay, let's keep it light and quick. Mm -hmm. um, these houses are built to last 10, 20 years. Okay. Incredible. With minimal maintenance because you have many things to do <laughs> every mm -hmm. day mm -hmm. in the villages. All right. And uh, you know, the roles of men and women, we could get into that too. Mm -hmm. But there's so much... After 35-plus years of researching and doing experimental archaeology, mm. uh, you just pick up things along the way, many things, which is, which is why you're here, At I one. suppose, which has drawn you mm -hmm. to me. Uh, so you build one of these houses, saplings, no more than three inches at the base, 25, 30 feet long. Uh, you bend them into arches. You know, I do a ground jig, okay, uh, a frame. Mm. Okay, so that all my arches are the same height when I place them at the same depth on level ground. What a nice level roof. Mm. People had been building houses here in eastern North America for well over 10,000 years, and the design changed very little. Mm. We know this archaeologically, Perfected. all right? Uh, but the houses become more and more permanent. doesn't mm. say the, the structure itself changed all that much. It just became more and more permanent, better insulated. Mm, what? Well, they were all waterproof, but to last uh, a greater. You know, How do you waterproof them? Is it just time the time period? Is it just the way that the 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 thatch roof is kind of layered? Okay. Once you get your what essentially is an upside down, semi flexible but very strong. Keep in mind domes, long houses, mm -hmm. uh, wigawa. The, the true, the only structure which should be called wigawa is a wooden dome mm. okay uh upside down tight basket-like framework covered with thatching stitched matting and or bark sheathing mm. which the powhatan said uh, the english said after the powhatan seeing the powhatan and talking to the powhatan uh, was very labor intensive i've done it it's mm. somewhat labor intensive it's no more labor-intensive than stitching mats hmm. and putting several layers over your uh, framework. Uh, combinations work even better because rush, cattail, are highly insulating as well as being hmm. waterproof. So is bark. And combinations, matting under the bark or whatever, makes what the English said. 
what the houses of these people are as warm and dry as English ovens in the winter, <laughs> albeit a bit smoky. Uh, but yes, uh, mat-covered floors, bed frames, um, mat-covered, and, and then the hides of large game animals smooth side towards you on the bed frames, seating during the day, sleeping at night, upper storage loft platforms, mm. cross pieces for hanging shocks of vegetables, herbs, mm. dried meats. You smoke your meats mm -hmm. in the roof of your house. You smoke mm. hides up there for clothing, bags, and other items. Final uh, stage of uh, brain conditioning hides. Uh, these houses, um, you need to kick up dust on the floor. No, your mat covered floors, hmm. all right? Uh, inner mat liners to uh, create a dead air space between the inner and the outer walls, promote ventilation. You have drop down ladders inside that you can then put back up, like hmm. your attic ladder, mm -hmm. all right? And because, the, would there be some kind of flap for a door for insulation? Um, single. Uh, they could be uh, woven. They could mm. be the hides of large game animals. Mm. I've done both. They work beautifully. Double up in the winter when it's cold on mm -hmm. these mats. You have one or two doorways, front and back of the lodge. Uh, I've gone in uh, in single-digit weather with 30-mile-an-hour gusts. Two of, uh, by the way, two of my lodges have withstood hurricanes with very little maintenance afterwards. Incredible. Well, it's because uh, domed lodges have no flat sides for wind to strike against. Mm, rolls so the off. wind flows up and around, mm. and they're semi-flexible, which is much stronger than a rigid home, mm. all right? Because uh, they bend a little bit. If you're flexible, you don't break, Right. Trees. In the well, forest, that's a good right? metaphor. Right? If you're flexible, you don't break. Well, that's it's a life, right. a life lesson, <laughs> mm. and a good one. I mean, mm. yeah. okay, uh, yeah. They're, they're, you're cocooned mm. when you go in, like a cabin. Yeah, you can relate to this because it's a similar feeling when you walk into a cabin, a log cabin. You feel cocooned by the, the native, the natural materials. Mm. They're, they're soft. They reflect the firelight. Mm. And in a native lodge, mm -hmm. um, a wooden uh, lodge, all these rushes and the inner bark and all is golden. Mm. So the firelight reflecting the shadows, it's just mystical in there. And you feel very much cocooned. Beautiful. It, it is indeed. So there were, as I've read a little bit, me, there was... May I say one other mm -hmm. thing yeah, before please, we move please. on? Go, I mentioned 30-mile-an-hour uh, gusts, single-digit mm -hmm. temperatures. This lodge was actually out in the open, not as Native people built them in the edge of, on the edge of the forest, but it was out in the open. Mm, wasn't sheltered all that much. <sighs> Well-built, had to be. Well-insulated, had to be. Because I went in, we had an 18-inch uh, oval hearth in the center of the lodge, bed frames and all this good stuff. All right. I go in. I have to traipse through about 12 inches of snow to get to the lodge. It's uh, banked up about two feet on one side. I, go, I, <laughs> I lift the flap, go in, close the flap, and uh, build a fire. As we have firewood stored under the bed frames things out of the way, small living area. Dimensions for a family of six to ten, usually three generations, including grandmother and grandfather, prehistoric times. Uh, we're an agrarian culture. We're farmers. Yeah, big families. 
right? Got to work the fields. Women need the children to help. All gathering firewood, all this stuff. So uh, I go in, I build an 18-inch fire. That's all I need. The lodge, 25 feet long, 14 wide, and about 10 to 11 tall, too mm. low to, keep, to conserve heat. Doorway, four, four and a half feet to conserve heat. Heat rises, right? All right, so I go in and I start the fire. I have three layers on, heavy outer coat and all that good stuff. In 20 minutes, I'm down to a long sleeve, rolled up sleeves, uh, jean shirt and jeans. And I am at mid-60s mm. with a small amount of firewood because you have to conserve firewood mm. in the villages. Mm -hmm. have, the more firewood you consume, the further you have to go to mm -hmm. gather it, right? And so small amounts of firewood will maintain that, let's say, low to mid-60s. A little cooler than people like today, but comfortable. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, that's the story. Incredible. So, uh, yeah, experience. Maybe that's one reason why people find what I have to say more on the fascinating side, because few people have ever experienced Because you're doing it. I've been doing it for 35-plus mm. years and three lodges, and I've been able to uh, spend some extended uh, periods of time in learning or uh, practicing the, the ancient life skills. So what's it like on a personal level? Spending building these and uh, spending the night in there. Are you by yourself? Uh, and are you feeling like you're connecting back to, you know, uh, your family members from 500, a thousand years ago? Are you feeling connected to all this? Like, what is your personal feelings in this? As close as one can in this day and time. Yes. But yes, it, it, it provides a sense mm. of what it was like. Mm especially when it's retrofitted mm. uh, with uh, items found during that time. Hides, mats, mm. uh, cooking pots. I make the clay, make and use the clay pots. Uh, cooking so cool. meals uh, on wooden barbecue racks and, um, and clay vessels. And uh, outfitted bows, arrows hanging around mm. the lodge. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, you do, you do feel a sense. Mm. And especially at night when it's quiet outside, uh, these locations, fortunately, were. Uh, uh, one um, is in closer touch with the spirits of our ancestors, which still walk the land. Mm. We're so intimate with it. Of course, they do. Um, and, uh, yeah, you get this sense. Do they communicate with you? it's a wonderful, incredibly... Fulfilling, relaxing tension mm. just goes away. Um, you're so involved with what you're doing at the time uh, that uh, it's nothing but pure pleasure. Mm. So, if everyone could experience that, I would highly recommend at least getting out in the natural world and, and at least camping for a while, mm -hmm. even though that's not quite there. But mm. Build a sweat lodge, build a uh, small shelter, earth lodge, and uh, you can go online and learn how to do that mm. and, and experience what this is like for yourself. Now, it's not going to be a full-scale family structure. Um, there is one at the Hansel Project in Vienna still standing. That's mm -hmm. the third one. And the volunteer staff still maintains it quite well. In fact, mm. they helped me build it. Mm. Couldn't do it alone. Mm -hmm. And they became quite close-knit, like a community, mm. okay? In the process, they're still friends, mm. close friends today. 
and they're part of what's going on, and they're maintenancing and keeping it up. So, so that's you can how go I, inside there. That's how anytime. I found you was through the last podcast guest, Jay Meredith, talked about that um, building that you built, and Great then guy. that's how I heard about you. Yeah, Jay and Sue. Do you yeah. feel actual communication with your ancestors in these in these scenarios? As you're sitting there putting this thing together, are you feeling actual communication? I feel them. Hmm. I know they're there, yes. And I've actually had people uh, come for the evening or come for events, and some of these people have the gift hmm. of sight. Hmm. I'll just leave it at that. And have seen, hmm. uh, have seen, shall we say, images, hmm. silhouettes, of people standing mm. at the edge of the forest watching. Oh, yes. So uh, you feel like as you're building these things, you're being like watched by your ancestors? Oh, yes. And I'm assuming that their, their response is appreciation. Part of their spirit still resides in us. Mm. Indeed. <laughs> I feel it. Wow. Yeah. I don't have that gift of sight, but there are people who do. Well, you, you and mentioned we your have always believed in the spirit world. You've mentioned your grandfather did. Mm. Oh, my grandfather. But yeah. before we get into that, <laughs> let's let's stick with yeah. um, because we're covering so much incredible uh, wealth yeah, of information was. about the culture. So we've talked about the housing structures. We talked about um, the, uh, the farming. Mm -hmm. um, they were also obviously hunters and fishermen and, and they trappers. They were still doing that. Even though you settle down and start practicing horticulture, uh, you're still going to spend a, a half your time, maybe, um, or slightly less, um, hunting and foraging because there are still, there's still a wealth mm. of natural food sources, plant and animal, to be harvested. And so what would happen is that even after first contact, and the English and others, they write about this. In fact, they make the mistake of going to our villages while we're out foraging, uh, and sometimes they'll move in because there's no one in the village at the time, temporarily. <laughs> they think and it's abandoned? To them, it's vacant. <laughs> oh so we God. come back, and they're, they're, they're Europeans the living in the village. Uh, go home. You know, go wow. home. Go home. On your way. Uh, so, yeah, at various times of the year for shellfish, for fishing, mm. for wildfowl, and in the fall months uh, for large-scale hunting, mm. uh, especially deer uh, drives and, and things like that. We, we just, uh, great numbers of people, several tribes will gather and do a, a large hunt. Uh, we'll do deer drives uh, mm. uh, out onto the ends of the peninsula, fan out and drive them towards the end of the peninsula. Fascinating. Uh, peninsulas. And uh, then deer are good swimmers, mm. you know. And keep in mind there are elk here, too. Of course. Coast they were to buffalo coast in America in the before mountains. European yeah. and, uh, contact in the fur trade. Yeah, mm. wiped out in the east. Mm -hmm. But uh, you drive them to the edges, uh, the ends of the peninsulas, Right, and they don't ha uh, have second thought about jumping in and, and swimming over the river or the creek, and you just happen to have people in log dugouts out there already with lances and bows, and you're going to clean up. Mm. And so the women then begin to prepare. The men are the hunters, generally speaking, yes, but men, women, 
in matriarchal, generally throughout Eastern North America, matriarchal, matrilineal tribes and nations. Um, ladies, you'll appreciate that. Um, the men own very little. The women own most. Hmm. Uh, they can take part in council. They have a vote. Uh, the woman essentially owns everything in the home because she makes everything and what you make you own. So you're saying the men could vote uh, men. Uh, well, all people in the villages okay. could vote. Okay. Yeah. But men and women are women? equals generally speaking. So women have a vote. Yeah. Even children who are old enough to uh, think rationally mm. uh, can participate in council. Mm. Uh, and as they grow, they're respected. Their comments are respected. They learn to become good speakers in mm. council. And that's nurturing because it promotes not only good speech, you become a good speaker, uh, but you, you build uh, self-esteem, mm. self-confidence. The elders respect you. They love mm. you. They respect you. Huge. And, yeah, yeah. That's huge. And one of the greatest virtues among most Native people that I know even though we're very diverse peoples, uh, is the ability to speak well. Mm. Uh, and people will respect you if you speak well and intelligently. And so to speak intelligently, Creator gave us two of these eyes and two of these ears to watch and listen. Mm. And so we might learn. And then only one of these mouths mm. to speak what we have learned. Speak too quickly before you have learned, you will sound foolish and people will not respect you. So I, Maybe we should be watching and listening twice as much mm -hmm. then as we speak. Well, that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast is listen to all these elders. I've, I don't really talk to anyone my age because I'm interested in what my elders have to say. But um, Thank you. I did um, interview one younger woman who is an herbalist and she... Um, when she lived in Colorado through synchronicities, she ended up being mentored by a Lakota man. A Lakota, uh, and he Thank would, you for saying Lakota and not Sioux. Ah. Remember Sioux was mm. given to the Lakota in the East, Dakota, Nakota mm. in the West. The word Sioux loosely translated, and this comes from a Lakota Sioux mm. woman, mm. given to them by their Ojibwe enemies. Mm. Literally, loosely translated, literally, when you say Sioux to a, uh, mm -hmm. to a Lakota or Nakota, Dakota, you're calling them a snake in the grass. Mm. Loosely translated. Well, Go I, ahead. I can't, I'm sorry. I can't take any credit for that. I, I just, I'm just saying what, the what she told in her yes, story. Yes, no so offense I, taken. Now I know that. Um, but she said that one of the huge lessons that she learned from her Lakota mentor was... Um, what you're saying right now, listening and silence, and you only speak when you have something important to say. And so often people speak to just fill up space and it's nonsense. And exactly what you're saying, if you speak, it should be important. <laughs> Which is one reason in council why some tribes and nations will have a talking stick in council. And wow. only that person which holds the talking stick at any given time may speak. All others may listen. If you wish to speak, you ask for the talking stick first. Wow. That, so I'm in, a, I'm in a men's group with about like seven other guys. We talk about all sorts of extremely intense stuff, life, um, family, and it's based on that structure. A good thing. That one person has a stick, it's there to, they get to speak, and everyone else is there to listen to them. Fascinating. Um, well, we're going on amazing tangents here. 
Um, I always seem to. Uh, but all things, remember, all things are related and everything is cyclic. Eventually, we oh, come around for again. For sure. <laughs> um, so, let's see. So, um, I did read that some of the clothing for like winter clothing would have been like bear hides, but fur turned in. So, you have the fur up against your skin. Was That's that, true. Would that have been kind of all the tribes? Or worse, wherever it's cold. Yeah, yeah, interesting. <laughs> interesting. Indeed. Uh, here in the Mid-Atlantic, our summers are a little milder. Winters, they're mm -hmm. a little milder than up north. Mm -hmm. So people dress differently. Mm -hmm. And further to our south, uh, south of the Mid-Atlantic, southeastern U.S., whatever, uh, people wore less because mm -hmm. it's of warmer. Of course, Milder yeah. winters. Yeah, so here, yeah, the clothing is going to be different than it is in the southeast and, and to the north. Mm -hmm. Yes, of course. Fur, yeah. Uh, in the wintertime, in, uh, in the warmer months, we'll go barefoot and bare-legged, mm. have one strap over the shoulder diagonal uh, frocks, which come down to the knees fringed. Very loose, very comfortable. Well, they're form-fitting, actually, but they're very comfortable, allow the heat to escape out the top. Uh, or aprons, mm. which you may have seen in some of the early pictures, mm. uh, European pictures. Now, those are fairly accurate. Okay, this is right. a question I really wanted to ask you. When I talked to you on the phone, you said you were just finished making a quiver based on a art, piece of artwork from the 1500s. Yes. When I look at a painting or an etching, how do you feel about how accurate of a representation that is. When I'm looking at a European painting from 1600s, am I seeing what it really was like? Oftentimes not, because you'll mm. only see one portion mm. uh, in the painting of the article, as with the Cruiver mm. in John White's painting, 1587. We're shown only the bottom half of the Cruiver. Hmm. That's it. Not how it's attached. Not the top half of the quiver. Oh, because we of must, the way that the character is standing in the artwork? We have to surmise mm. the materials. Um, you, you have to surmise what, what is out there. And only through experience and, and working with natural materials can you pretty much begin to figure out what it's made of. So the, a little bit of, so why that term interpretive Native American historian is because some of the stuff you, through creativity and through reason and through experience, you're kind of piecing together some things that are not quite, you know, locked down in, in fact. If you're using natural materials uh, to fabricate uh, these articles, if you can think of it, and if you're familiar enough with mm -hmm. what to use to make them, if you can think of it, your ancestors already did. <laughs> they not only thought of it, they honed it to mm. perfection over countless generations. So the best I can do in this modern time is to, sometimes we have artifacts that, are, that mm. we can inspect and, mm -hmm. and see the whole thing done traditionally and pass down information, passed down through generations. Oftentimes here on the East Coast, first contact, not later contact, mm -hmm. uh, as to the West, we only have scanty bits of information mm. recorded. 
So the best we can do is touch upon. And I feel like gotten pretty close, actually. I'm using the right materials. Mm. I'm putting them together pretty darn close mm. to what I see being utilized. You had many choices. Mm. I think that quiver is rush. I don't think it's uh, our native uh, river cane, which is heavier. It's, it's stiff. Hmm. This is a soft, flexible, strong quiver, light for a foot traveler, because you must remember we rarely rode horses in the mm -hmm. eastern forests, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. even after they were available. We're farmers. Mm -hmm. We don't have grazing land around our villages. That's all under cultivation and orchards. We don't have grazing land for large livestock. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyhow, horses are generally later in colonial times used as pack animals by Eastern groups, uh, not for riding. Want the great horse cultures? Start in the late 16, early 1700s, and that would be out there in the mm -hmm. Midwest Great Plains, totally. the nomadic peoples. But when I'm looking at a painting, do you feel like the Europeans accurately depicted what a warrior or a chief, like the way they would dress? Do you th or do you think they're taking artistic license to, um, you know, jazz it up? Or Some, is this sometimes, yes. Okay. So and our shelters, our right. homes. Right. Yeah, because often uh, here in the Mid-Atlantic, what's depicted are flat-ended hmm. uh, uh, longhouses, mm -hmm. uh, like up north, the big longhouses, mm -hmm. the Iroquois and others. Generally speaking, Algonquin-speaking peoples didn't build those. They're generally, Iroquoian groups built those. Not always, most of the time. Uh, coastal Algonquin groups? The, the ends, and we know this uh, from archaeologists excavating and seeing the post hole patterns where the posts stain the earth darker than mm -hmm, the surrounding mm -hmm. soil. They find the pattern at ground level. Okay. Uh, we know the lodges here in the Mid-Atlantic uh, were rounded on the ends, mm -hmm. cigar-shaped, okay. if you wish. Um, domes, they're extended. You pull them or stretch them from front to back, and they're longer. I mentioned the dimensions earlier for mm -hmm. one family. Powhatan had these long houses, which were 60, 80 yards long for mm. storing tribute or taxes, you know, uh, from his people. They can vary in size. Wait, wait, wait. What are you talking about? What does that mean? Gifts and taxes? A tribute? What does tax? that mean? Yeah, you're going to pay the paramount chief. Uh, so a to tribute. be in the Powhatan, to be under Powhatan um, protection, yeah. you got to pay for that. Uh, yeah, tribute, tribute, and, yes. and to honor Powhatan, interesting, uh, and his district chiefs who preside like over mafia. each village chief in each tribe. And there are over 30 tribes by the time the English arrive at Jamestown. Few people realize that Powhatan only inherited through his mother's bloodline, I might add, matriarchal, remember, mm -hmm. um, from his father. Only, it's, it's said, six tribes through his birthright to inherit the the paramount chieftainship, okay? What does it mean when you say paramount? Like a kingdom? The chief of chiefs. Chiefs of chiefs, okay. Chief, uh, Mamanatoic in Poatan. Mamanatoic, uh, the paramount chief. The Got chief it. of all chiefs. Got it. Okay. Okay. Wanna know how it goes? Yeah. In the chiefdom? Yes. Because 
Not all tribes and nations on the East Coast are going to be chiefdoms. No, they're going to be a little more independent. Right. Uh, there are going to be, uh, let's say, um, hierarchical levels, okay? And generally speaking, this is how it goes. And, in a chiefdom, and chiefdom can differ a little bit and does. You well, have you're, a paramount you're, chief. You're only going to be under the Powhatan protection because you're being protected from something. Uh, so that, who are you being you protected you're from? Pa part of that tribute is for protection. Protection. So who are you be who are those tribes that are under Powhatan? Who are they who are they getting protection from? Their enemies. Yeah, well who are those? Oh, to the west of the fall line, uh roughly where Richmond now stands. Okay. Where the Piedmont rivers mm -hmm. Fall rapidly onto the coastal plain and tidal waters. Mm -hmm. A lot of rapids and stuff. They call it the fall line. Uh, west of the fall line mm -hmm. was the, roughly the demarcation between the Powhatan tribes, mm -hmm. which covered about an 8,000 square mile area when. Uh, Let's see, that would be south bank of the Potomac down to about 30 miles south of the James mm. toward North Carolina from the fall line to the Atlantic Ocean. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Mm -hmm. 10 to 30,000 people estimated. Incredible. Okay? Double that before 1500 and European contact Disease and knocked European out. epidemics. Mm. By the time the English arrive at Jamestown mm. in 1607, mm -hmm. 100 years of trade on this coast mm -hmm. already. From Canada to Mexico, half the tribes and nations, uh, their populations have been decimated. Mm. Whole tribes and nations have already disappeared. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so to answer your question, um, the Monacan, Mononica, the Monacan chieftainship or mm. chiefdom, okay, they're allied. They don't speak Algonquin as Powhatan tribes do. Actually, Wapanaki, but Algonquin will do. It caught on. Uh, Algonquin is a language. It's a base language. Got it. Okay. And all these Chesapeake tribes Which is tribes really the, uh, the Lenape, hmm. which translated, original people loosely translated, we think are the original Algonquin speakers. Over countless generations, groups, as they expanded population, especially with horticulture, uh, groups broke off and formed distinct tribes and nations as time passed. Mm -hmm. And But the Lenape are the original people. That's what Lenape loosely means. Uh, we still call them grandmother and grandfather. Some of the Algonquin-speaking tribes still do. They call us their grandchildren. Uh, so we were saying... West the of the fall line, mm -hmm. the Monacan today. Monacan, Mononica. Monica. And I believe they were kind of in the area that I live in, in the beginning of the Blue well, Ridge Mountains. Well, no, you're actually more into that Monacan, uh, Virginia, mm -hmm. central, southwestern Virginia, Piedmont, mm -hmm. um, on down into the North Carolina Piedmont, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, up in the Maryland Piedmont and mm -hmm. coming down into northwestern Virginia, Piedmont, uh, you're going to have the Manahawk, people like the Manahawk. Okay. The Manahawk, uh, based on my research, uh, an Iroquoian-speaking group base, as were the Mononica, mm. the Monacan, uh, base Iroquoian language, the Cherokee, the Tuscarora before mm -hmm. their colonial war with the English, and they're driven further north and become the Six Nation. 
their their hunting lands span a good portion, most of East Central North Carolina, mm. the Tuscarora. You see people, the Nottoway, Maharan, living right next to Powhatan's people. Mm. Uh, they speak dialects, distant dialects of the Beysirikoyan language. Powhatan, uh, dialects of the Algonquin mm. or Wapanaki language. That's what the Lenape told the Dutch and the English. Uh, and and your tribes in Nanticoke, they were Algonquin speaking? Yeah, we don't speak Algonquin, we speak Wapanaki. Okay. <laughs> so Algonquin's fine. That's what most people are familiar with. Usually if you speak a different language, you mm -hmm. don't exactly get along, but mm -hmm. uh, not always. It's different culture, different ways of governing. It's just a, but then you have different ways of governing right smack in the middle of Powhatan's chiefdom. Mm -hmm. The Chickahominy, good mm -hmm. example. They're never really totally a part of Powhatan's chiefdom. They're living almost in the middle of it. Mm. But they're strong enough. They can mass about 250, 300 warriors. They don't have a, a governing system that's like the rest of the Powhatan tribes, as far as we know. They're governed by elders, by priests, if you will, mm. about eight of them in a council. Hmm. Okay, they're strong enough that they can diplomatically maneuver with Powhatan. Hmm. They manage to stay on his good side, hmm. and they pay him a little tribute every year to keep him happy, and their warriors will join his warriors hmm. uh, to fight his enemies when called upon. That's all you got to do. <laughs> and to be a part of that now... You're safe. Mm. You go from maybe 50, 100 miles of uh, square miles of hunting territory mm. to over 8,000 square miles. Mm. You can go anywhere in it. All right. Totally fascinating. And so, you why are they enemies with the Western tribes other than the language barrier? Is it around hunting resources? Is it just different ancestral, ancestral enemies? Different cultures. Different okay. cultures, different ways of governing, different ways of thinking. Remember Native peoples, even one or two watersheds away. Are completely uh, different. Well, if you traveled 50, 75 miles from your birthplace during your life, mm -hmm. before the 20th century, most people don't realize you had traveled far indeed. Mm. Unless you were a trader, you didn't travel that far in mm. your life. Mm. And so distinct cultures arose over very short distances. And some of them didn't agree with each other. And people would get insulted sometimes, mm. and then they'd start raining each other. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that's like a feud. Mm -hmm. Once you start it, that's a good way to train your young warriors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And why would you want to wipe out your enemies? Because then you have to go further and make new enemies. And that doesn't make any <laughs> There's sense. There always needs to be someone to war with. Uh, it's not war. It's raiding. Mm. It's the feud. Mm. It's generally going to be, uh, for a lot of Native peoples, village to village, not mm. tribe to tribe, not nation to nation, mm. but village to village raiding. Mm. As small gr smaller groups of warriors. I learned from a young uh, Talon Silverhorn over here. He's a... Uh, Interpreter, he'd be a good one to talk to. Mm -hmm. Talon, Hawk Talon, mm -hmm. Silverhorn. He was uh, raised on the Oklahoma Shawnee, mm -hmm. Shawanom Reservation. Uh, highly skilled young man, mm. highly intelligent young man, mm. and would be a wonderful person to interpret if okay, you can snag you. him. Okay, Talon. Uh, so anyhow, and he does a lot of the traditional life skills as well. Mm. Excellent boyer and quill worker and the list goes on and on I have great respect for him 
Uh, so, yeah, you, uh, he told me that uh, uh, raiding, mm -hmm. uh, the Shawano, there's honor in raiding. Mm. Okay, you're at odds with, with someone, but among certain groups of Native peoples, mm. and I think even the Shawano, uh, Talon can confirm that, but uh, he speaks of sending emissaries to your enemy, to their council, and actually informing them in advance. We're coming. That we're coming. Mm. You're going to be raided, so prepare yourselves. Because raiding among certain groups is not done village to village. Mm. Okay, it, it, the villages are peaceful places. A lot of time and effort has gone into those fields, the construction of those villages. People respect that, even among their enemies. To kill non-warriors in raiding by many native peoples, it, it, there's no honor in that. There's honor in uh, overpowering an enemy warrior, yeah. Mm. And here that could be a I male did or want to hear about. I did want to hear about war taboos, like where there are rules, yeah. and you're telling me right now. Not until European arrival is large-scale warfare known in, the, in North America, at least. Mm, fascinating. No, it's just not known. So what you're talking about is kind of more like gang warfare type thing. Well, it's kind of, I guess. It's, mm. You could look at it sort of like that. Small mm. numbers going head-to-head, mm. -head, yeah. And fight to the death? Yes. Sometimes. People it kind of makes me think of like, of like the knights, European knights, mm. or duels even. There's a chivalry kind of in it honor honor exactly samurai honor. warriors same kind of thing honor mm -hmm. so they will tell you they're coming mm. they'll not only tell you they're coming Talons speaks of this they'll tell you how many mm. they're bringing how many warriors we're bringing and where we want to meet you mm. somewhere between the villages so mm. the warriors can then go head to head and there's honor in that mm. okay not the villages there are non-combatants in the villages you know kill elders, mm. women, children, mm. women who are not warriors, children. You don't do that. There's mm. no honor in it. Mm. There's no honor in burning someone's village. There's no honor in burning their fields. Mm. And, and then later in colonial times, you have enough salt. Europeans would salt our fields and keep us from reestablishing. I'll kill yeah. off all the plants. Yeah. The, Damn. Uh, you contaminate the soil with mm -hmm. salt. Mm -hmm. So there's no honor in that. Mm-hmm. By the way, scalping, which is uh, uh, a trophy mm -hmm. and contains the spirit of your enemy, mm -hmm. uh, you got him right there or her, depending. And um, you can display that as your, your badge of uh, mm -hmm. conquest, if mm -hmm. you will, on your lodge pole in front of your lodge and increase your stature at the same time, right? Uh, but uh, yeah, there's no honor in that. Um, so you're not trying to obliterate your enemy. You're no, not trying to wipe them off the foolish. planet. Yeah, and your young warriors have no one to mm. uh, to attack unless you go further and make new enemies. Mm. This has been going on for countless generations mm. between Powhatan and the Monacan, the Manahuac, uh, the Susquehanna who mm. raid into this area from the north. Um, apparently, um, it's said that... Uh, well, Smith in his journal says that uh, Powhatan was on pretty good terms 
with uh, people like Wenjina, uh the the Chowanuck, hmm. the Chowanuck River in North Carolina today, along that watershed. And they knew each other. They got along pretty well. They spoke different dialects of hmm. Algonquin, but they could communicate very well. And other Algonquin-speaking groups, they they get along pretty well. Okay, and they ally at times. But generally, they're pretty good distance from each other, and the greater the distance after 50, 75 miles, the lesser uh, contact you're going to have. Regardless, raids have been going on between the Monarch and the Manahuac and the, uh, uh, the, the Poatan uh, for countless generations. It's written that the Poatan were here in this region for at least 300 years, maybe longer, who knows. Um, but for 300 is an estimate based on generations. But yeah. and, and I'm assuming once the Europeans start like draining resources, pushing tribes, then that's going to create more of like all-out warfare between tribes. They're squatting and 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 they're squatting and building fortifications. Mm. What does that tell you as a native? Native people rarely palisade their villages unless they're out on the perimeter closer to the enemies, all right, of their mm. hunting territory, say 1,000 square miles. The village of Powhatan, where Powhatan is born, at the falls of the James, mm. loosely speaking, about three miles this way east, but about 12 houses, Smith said, beautiful fields, mm. pristine, perfect area for mm. a village. Uh, Powhatan gets his name from where he's born, in the village, Powhatan, okay? That village is palisaded. Smith mentions it mm. because they're right on the fringes of their enemy's territory. But there is, and it's often the case, the Shenandoah Valley, the southwestern Roanoke Valley, the whole state of Kentucky, Mm. those are buffer zones between enemies. Mm. You see, yeah, you're right. No man's land. No man's land Mm. where large-scale hunting in the fall goes on because animals congregate there. Mm. Keep in mind, villages are are prolific. Mm. So people are going to hunt out the animals, you know, fairly rapidly in densely populated areas, which is what Powhatan's chiefdom, the land, is called Tsunakamaka. T.S. Tsunakamaka. Kamako. Tsunakamaka sometimes. Loosely translated, they think, uh, means densely populated land. Mm. Okay? The English come along, and in certain areas, specifically these buffer zones, which are no man's land, agreed upon by both sides, Mm. that anyone can come there and hunt, Mm. for good reason, as I mentioned. Anyone can come there and hold ceremony, but you cannot live there. So the English look at these places, and they'll call them deserts right? in the early journals. No one's you've come it. across that, deserts. Mm. In the history books, if you read deserts, mm. well, it's a desert because no one lives there. Mm. And that's the only reason. Of course, mm. they're lush, beautiful mm-hmm, mm-hmm, areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have this buffer zone between you and your enemies. You're still going to palisade your village because you're right next to the buffer zone. You stand mm-hmm. a greater chance of attack, which is why Powhatan's people are probably very strong and uh, have the status they have as warriors because they're right next to the enemy. Mm. They're not in the internal part of Powhatan's chiefdom, mm. right? So 
generally native villages further in your, your hunting lands are not going to be palisaded. Uh, but when you see the English arrive and stick up walls and start immediately enemy. building a palisade, what does that say to you you're as a native? Enemy. You're an enemy. Yeah. Yeah, why are you're you doing expecting that? trouble. We see you as potential threat. Fascinating. All right. We're very leery. Mm. We're very untrusting of mm. you. Mm. All right. And so there are no women among them. Mm. What the hell? The first early colonial. No women among them. So what does that say Warriors. to you? Warriors. Warriors. Holy shit. Yes, indeed. <laughs> you're at, you're immediately set up for conflict. You can only look at them mm. as seeing you as a potential threat. Mm -hmm. All right? Yeah, they won't they have good trade items and mm. we want some of those. Yeah, mm -hmm. they're mm -hmm. new, unique. Um we didn't uh, work a lot of metals here, but few people realize in North America, native people have been forging iron and steel mm. in certain regions, not here but in certain regions long before Europeans arrive. Mm. We have the artifacts to prove it. I won't get into all that. <clears throat> but they have wonderful trade goods, bolts mm. of cloth, metal goods, glassware, bright, including brightly colored glass trade beads. Mm. We only have natural dyes. They're more subdued. These are bright colors. In fact, Powhatan wants the blue especially. I don't know if it's for the same reason among our people. Uh, uh, we saw blue as uh, sky colors, mm. male colors, male colors, mm. um, the earth colors, female colors. Mm. And so blue, oh, Matt Powhatan, it just falls prey to this trade by Smith. And uh, Smith, Smith uses it as a bargaining chip, and he, mm. it works. But uh, blue glass trade beads were highly treasured, mm. as was copper. Mm. Copper is the very heart of the Earth Mother. It's reddish in color. Mm -hmm. It's there are many stories among Native people here, especially in Eastern North America, that relate to copper. But you can only really afford copper in trade unless you're upper echelon. Among the Powhatan, you generally didn't see the common people wearing mm. copper because couldn't afford it. <coughs> it's a status symbol. <clears throat> so, yeah, they see them as a threat. You were talking about Makes the invitation. The invitation, the English come in, they're very leery. They can't communicate very well mm -hmm. with Native people and vice versa. Okay, here's something I really want to talk about. And, you know, I've read a few of your the articles about you. I read the little presentation that I guess you put together in, in creating the uh, the shelter. And a lot of what's so fascinating about your work is it's about like the, the material world, right? The material world of these cultures and your culture. How about the spiritual world? So um, I'm going into this, assuming there are things you can't talk about. I'm wondering, are there things you can't talk about? And if you could, can we hear about, you can tell it about Powhatan, you can tell it about Nanticoke, but what are some of the spiritual beliefs or the spiritual stories or the ceremonies that you're allowed? I'm assuming you're not allowed to talk about all this, some of it, but what can you tell about it? If there I are, if you're allowed to, uh, yes, I'm what allowed can I to, hear about? Of course. Uh, I can't speak mm. for even Native people in closer regions because. Native people are so diverse. Right. They have many, many stories um, among each group. 
Uh, but how about that the relate to creation, that mm. relate to spirituality, beliefs? Um, no, I couldn't begin to touch upon that. Mm. I can only speak of our particular beliefs. Mm -hmm. And really, that since we um, descend from the Lenape, mm. um, the Lenape beliefs, generally speaking, are uh, going to be uh, such that um, the Creator, which among most Native groups I know, is the giver and receiver of all things, mm. not some old guy with a white beard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And it uh, um, has no gender, mm. okay? Uh, creator is not only the giver and receiver of all things, but that which moves through all things in mm. the universe and binds all things together. Mm. That's the creator. There's only, among most Native people I know and have spoken with, one creator, at least in Eastern North America, uh, only one creator. Now, creator, there are deities, yes, but mm. there are deities in, in Christendom, mm -hmm, okay? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have angels and cherubs mm -hmm. and all that good stuff. Well, yes, we have deities. We have the creator, and we have the opposing side, the dark side mm. as well, here called Okus or mm. Okius, all right, among the Pohatan. Uh, some Algonquin-speaking peoples, uh, creator Ohana. Ohona, oh, Ohona, and, and Okius or Okus. Uh, oh, that's an interesting aspect. But first of all, that's the creator. The story uh, we sometimes tell is that uh, creator or that consciousness which pervades the universe mm -hmm. um, created uh, three worlds. Uh, the sky world, uh, the which was the vast expanse, and within it uh, were, were created uh, first the the uh, the water world, the, the which later had land, uh, the middle, okay, and then you have the underworld. Mm. So you have the sky world, you have the world we live in, and you have the underworld, okay. Uh, now, to keep it short. Uh, creator's wife, creator's wife, because we can't imagine an afterlife without women <laughs> and without hunting and without uh, celebrations and, you know, just going up there and singing and, uh, you know, and uh, flying around. I, I don't know about that. But anyhow, it's okay. It's good stories. <laughs> just like we told Europeans, and very few Native people ever converted to Christianity, mm -hmm. by the way. In, in North America, at least. But we, uh, we have our own beliefs, okay? So don't try to convert us. It ain't going to work. And very few people, Native people, ever converted to Christianity. Uh, don't try to impress yourself upon us. It, it never worked. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't work with anyone. So here goes. A long story short, the tree of life 
is created up there. Creator's wife's walking along one day and falls through a hole in the, in the sky world. She lands, fortunately, Creator doesn't have a lot of influence down here at the time. He has some power, but enough to slow her fall. And she lands upon the back of a great turtle swimming in the ocean. That great turtle is this island we live upon called the Great Turtle Island, which we call North America these days. All right. The story goes on and on to make it short. Um, Muskrat is the one who eventually, there are several attempts, but Muskrat is the one who eventually reaches, because uh, there's no land at the time, it's just all taking place on the back of a great turtle, all right? Muskrat, however, uh, dives down to the bottom of the water world and uh, finds land, okay? And brings some of the mud up and dies in the process, but delivers it to the back of the great turtle. Creator's wife's daughter, Earth Mother is, I'm not going to go into all the names, um, causes the earth to spread out over the shell of the, of the great turtle. And uh, land is formed, and from it springs the great tree of life. And then uh, Creator causes the plants and animals to be formed from it. And uh, lastly, uh, first man and first woman. So... Kind of similar to Christianity, isn't it? So to speak. Well, that creation story is awesome. Thank you. I mean, it's just one of many. Well, I love some of them follow along the same lines. I love that muskrat. I knew about uh, Turtle Island. I did not know about muskrat having such an integral um, part of that story. Oh, most most definitely. And dies in the process. Yes. Because he has to hold his breath uh, so long Mm. that uh, he literally dies. But just to Mm. bring up the earth from the the great uh, water, which covers the entire planet at the time, by Mm. the way, or the middle earth. Mm. Because Native people considered it pretty much flat. <laughs> okay. Um, some did, Come some Come a little didn't. closer. I should say, some did, some didn't. Sure. And okay. um, what were some of the Nanticoke ceremonies? Like, was there the religious le- were there religious leaders? Was There were. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know... Much about them. Okay. Not much was ever recorded. Okay. There's so little was recorded, especially about the Nanticoke. More, much more was recorded about the uh, the Powhatan. Okay. Because uh, this was first colonization. Okay. Um, they didn't really have that much interest, except in trade. Um, we're good hunters for fur. Wait, wait, right. wait. You're saying the Europeans didn't have that much interest no, in recording they, that, that they, stuff. They saw Got us. Yes. They, they saw Native people um, as savages, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're not Christian, you're an infidel. You're a savage around the world mm-hmm. at the time. And uh, to them, we're just half-naked savages mm-hmm. running through the forest making strange noises they can't understand. Mm-hmm. Animals, if you will. Mm-hmm. Just another species of animal. And, uh, and so we have no right to the land. Hmm. We're just another species of animal. 
Do you really yeah. think that they, they oh, animals? it's they record. Mm. Oh, you can tell what their mindset is. Mm. All right, <laughs> definitely. Mm. Uh, and, and so the land is open for the taking. Mm. Indeed, that's mm. the mindset of the period. Yeah, and of course they bring the diseases. Yes, Jesus and Christ. so at times they write. Mm. They actually write it. This the this unseen enemy. Wherever we go, native people begin to die in great numbers. Mm. Uh, they considered it a gift from their God, because any time you go among native people and they begin to die naturally. Uh, from an unseen cause, but we know whenever we contact them, they begin to die in great numbers. So maybe it's a gift from God wow. that they are dying in great numbers wow. because, boy, that's just opening the land for us for colonization. Very dark. I see what you're saying. The Europeans thought that God had a hand in all this. This is the true story. Mm. It's written. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. To go back, do you know anything about the ceremonial rituals of the Powhatan? No. Okay. Not really. I would suggest talking to the Powhatan. Okay. Okay. Uh, many remnant tribes mm -hmm. of the Powhatan chiefdom uh, gathered throughout the 1600s mm. because they were being killed and, and they were dying off mm -hmm. from European epidemics. Uh and prejudice, and they're mm -hmm. corralled, and they're herded in, onto small reservations. Mm -hmm. At first, in the late 1600s, three-mile perimeters around the primary village. And you had to have written permission from the English magistrates mm -hmm. to leave it uh, at that time. So you go from 8,000 square miles to a three-mile <laughs> perimeter around your village. Uh, regardless. I would suggest talking to uh, the Pamunkey mm -hmm. uh, up here on the Pamunkey River. Mm -hmm. uh, have a reservation. You don't find that word until the 1800s. They were land grants before reservations. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Mattapanai have uh, two of the original tribes that Powhatan inherited. Mm. Okay. Well, he was born into the Pamunkey. All right. Yeah, strongest of the Powhatan tribes. See, Powhatan is born into the strongest clan, mm. the hierarchical mm -hmm. uh, clan, in the strongest tribe in the Powhatan chiefdom at that mm. time. That's how he inherits He's his set right up. to be paramount mm. chief. Um, talk to the Mattapanai, talk to the Pomunkey. Okay. Okay, you can contact them through their, um, their online. Yep, their okay. tribe website. Yeah, and their tribal leaders. Fascinating. And they can give you more on that particular subject, perhaps. Well, this has been awesome. Now, Thank you. I've, all of this is riveting, and I, I could learn about this for days on end. Thank you. I when, hope other people feel as you do. I think they do. Because it gives me and others uh, a chance to share uh, our traditional mm -hmm. uh, life ways and culture uh, with people uh, the greater public, uh, native and non-native, by the way. And there are a lot of natives that don't know much about their traditional mm. cultures. And uh, more surprising than you might think, um, they borrow heavily from Western culture because they held on to their uh, traditions for but much it's, it's actually period. not that surprising, you know. 
I like, how yeah. much do I know about my indigenous roots in Europe? Not too much. I started learning about the Gauls and their housing structures, mm -hmm. you know, kind of a similar um, mirroring of history. Caesar came in and kind of annihilated all of them, pushed them away and took over their women and children. He subjugated them. Exactly, exactly. But, Same um, as Powhatan, mm. either diplomatically or through outright military action. Mm. Depended. Mm. So when we talked on the phone, we're switching gears totally right now. Okay. When we talked on the phone, you started, I told you about the last podcast guest, Jay Meredith, your friend and acquaintance, and uh, he had told the story about the legend of Big Liz in the uh -huh. Greenbrier Swamp. And been there. Been there. And you, I, I could <laughs> Was sense- Was born and raised there. Mm. Okay. Same, I, same area. I could sense when we were talking on the phone that you really appreciated him telling the story of Big Liz, but also you started to talk about uh -huh. your grandfather's story in the swamps when he was out hunting. Could you tell that story? Because wherever you were, I stopped you because you were, whatever you're starting to say sounded incredible. <laughs> and I was like, stop. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd be more than happy to share it. I descend on my father's side, know very little about my mother's side of the family. They're from Philly, <laughs> Scots, okay? Uh, I'm, I'm Based on genealogy that uh, I and others have, have done, uh, I am principally Highland Scots and Native American. I can say Native American, I have... I only have to go back three generations to find a grandfather, a great-great-grandfather. Is that three or four? That's four generations, I guess, who is full-blood Nanticoke, okay? Here's the story. Why? And so the bloodlines haven't been tremendously diluted, but diluted nevertheless, as with most Eastern Native people, first contact people. Late 1600s, early 1700s, we finally, the Nanticoke people finally uh, get fed up with the English encroachment. You know, plantations, tobacco, they want the high, well-drained land. We're pushed and pushed and pushed. Finally, land grants are set aside for the Nanticoke and others. There were 11 or 13 reservations set aside, land grants set aside on, on the Delmarva Peninsula. None of them are there today. And only Native people own land on one of those land grants. Okay. Late 16, early 1700s. We get fed up. The, the, the leaders of our people get fed up. They've been in cahoots with the Shawanoa or Shawnee and the Iroquois. Uh, and eventually, they get to the point, English livestock rooting up our gardens. We rely on for food, et cetera, et cetera, all the prejudice and stealing out of our ossuaries and even the Paramount Chief's cabin. They raided and stole things out of freshwater pearls, copper, anything of value they can find. Native-made stuff they can sell. Uh, be that. Finally, the leaders throw up their arms, get tired of dealing with the Maryland government that we have never really gotten along with. Actually, they earmark us first. <laughs> and uh, 
we accept the invitation of the Iroquois to join them. So we began a series of migrations along with remnant Powhatan, Piscataway, Conoy people. You know, a series of migrations north to link up with the Iroquois. All right. They know us well up there even today. Now, some people, and it's always the case, as with the Powhatans, as with the Piscataway, there are those who are too young, too old, too sickly to make that journey. Others stay behind to care for them. They assimilate, eventually, with European culture. Initially, they seek the places Europeans aren't really interested in. And on the eastern shore, uh, Dorchester County, Maryland specifically, but you know, the marshlands of the eastern shore, the English are not so interested in, in those places. Now, there are pine islands, sometimes massive, in those horizon-to-horizon marshlands. The remnants of the peoples, uh, many of them move into the marshlands, develop isolated communities on the Pine Islands, okay? The last recorded uh, native cabins in Dorchester County, where I was born and raised, on my my ancestors' hunting lands, uh, were recorded in um, where my grandfather lived his whole life uh, and my father's young life. Um, uh, Oh, jeez. Robins. Toddville area, some people will know those. Um, Anyhow, they develop these isolated communities, and they slowly assimilate with other Europeans. Uh, But um, these communities stay quite isolated all the way up till the mid part of the 20th century. In fact, they're somewhat isolated today. And so the bloodlines aren't extremely thinned. You know, there are sometimes second and third cousins marrying, okay? Um, my grandfather said, all right? This, I'm quoting him now. Uh, so very isolated. The English don't want the lands uh, so much because they're marshlands, infested with mosquitoes and other biting insects, etc. They continue to do what they have always done. They can not only hunt deer and and other game on these islands and in the marshlands, they can trap the marshlands for muskrat principally with my grandfather and uh, otter uh, earlier on when they were more prolific. And they're watermen. They continue to work the waters. You know, shellfish, crabs, fish, you know, and that's what my grandfather was. Uh, They're eastern shore watermen, all right? My grandfather built those uh, dovetail workboats. After European uh, Europeans arrive and the traps are available, they begin to ur- use the European traps. Uh, before, they're using snares uh, principally. And my grandfather even used snares on occasion, wire snares. And before that, cordage, which is extremely strong and rot-resistant, like dog bane or Indian amp, uh, you can make wonderful snares out of that stuff. And just lay them right in the runways of the muskrat and pole, right? And snag them on the way. Okay. Uh, yeah, watermen and trappers. And that's leading up to the story, the other story. Now, there are many. Uh, and not just my grandfather, not just my father and my uncles, but uh, and many people down there in Robbins, Andrews, Toddville area, they have seen this. Uh, earlier 
in their law uh, back gen- a generation or more, they seem to be more um, commonplace. Okay, people aren't seeing them as much these days for some odd reason. At least that's to the best of my knowledge. A couple of generations ago, people were seeing them all the time, and groups of them, as well as individual uh, marsh lights, which people try to explain away as marsh gases. No, and I'll tell you why. They're sentient. They're sentient spirits, not marsh gases. I wish my grandfather was still here to relate the story as he experienced it. But my dad also experienced it, and one of my uncles at the time. Ah, here goes. So this one story, uh, among the other, is my uncle, dad, and my grandfather are out duck hunting. Uh, They have to walk a path through the marsh about a half mile uh, to get to the duck blind on the Blackwater uh, near... um, Shorter's Wharf Bridge in um, Robbins, Maryland. Okay, it's on the Blackwater, crosses the Blackwater. So they're up in the marsh, half mile or so, and they're duck hunting, and they leave, but before they can get back halfway, it gets dark on them. Well, this is a one single-file path through the marsh, in places, you have to do what's called hopping tussocks. And the Eastern Shore people will understand that very well. Uh, they're just plant growth where you can step without s- disappearing in the ooze. Okay? So, you tend to step lightly as the light diminishes. They got caught. They didn't leave soon enough. They got caught in the dark. They didn't have a lantern. They didn't have a flashlight. They didn't have anything. So they didn't know what they were going to do. You can't walk in the dark. If you step off the path, you're dead meat. I mean, it's just going to suck you up. Uh, and so they stood. My grandfather told me uh, while they were standing there, they just happened to look out across the marsh and out of ways, they saw a light. My grandfather says it looked like a house light that had a haze around it, about three or four feet out. It was a, an aura, okay? It, it did illuminate the marsh to some degree. It was about the size of a grapefruit once it came close, and we'll get to that. Um, they range in sizes and color. Uh, this one was a yellowish-orange. And it radiated, and uh, it was just floating across the marsh. At first, my grandfather said he thought it was someone carrying a lantern, walking the marsh, okay, further out. Then he realized it couldn't be someone carrying a lantern because someone carrying a lantern will bob as they walk slightly, okay? This was just a straight line, all right? They called to it, nevertheless, hoping it was someone that could help. It had a lantern, all right, and could make it to them, and they could follow the path back. Well, they called, they called. This light changed course. It came directly towards them. 
it got closer and closer and stopped just out of arm's length. It was that close and hovered over the marsh. And they knew right then and there, this is something they had seen before and other people have seen, and they know them as marsh lights. They've never been known to hurt anyone, but they show up oftentimes when people die. Maybe they're there to escort the spirits into the next world. Who knows? It happened with my great-grandmother, by the way. Uh, and I'll get back to the story. But my great-grandmother died on a second story. No air conditioning, no, nothing like that. The window was open in that room. Um, some of the family were there, including my dad and my grandfather. And uh, one of these lights uh, came and sat on the windowsill uh, when she was on her deathbed. Okay? And uh, they watched it, and nobody tried to bother it, and it lifted up and started moving away from the window. Everyone went to the window to watch it. And just across the way, about a quarter mile out uh, in Robbins, there's a graveyard, and it's called uh, Sandy Island. It's a small graveyard. Some of my ancestors, including my great-grandmother and grandfather, are, are uh, buried there. Uh, and moved uh, like it, almost like it settled in one of the oak trees there on the island and uh, hovered and just stayed there. My great-grandmother died that night. She was on her deathbed. She died, and that light had hovered directly over her gravesite. Now, groups of these lights have often been seen, my grandfather, my father, between that graveyard and an even older graveyard, uh, the old graveyard at Abbottown, last recorded Indian villages. My great-grandmother and father lived there, about a dozen houses in the marsh. And uh, there's only a, a graveyard, old graveyard there now. Uh, these lights are seen traveling individually and in groups of up to 10, 15 uh, from Sandy Island to the old graveyard back and forth. They're, they're commonly seen doing that. Um, so back to the story. Um, here are my father and my uncle and my dad. Uh, my father, my grandfather. This light is just out of arm's length. When they try to reach out and touch it, it moves just far enough away that they can't touch it. They lower their hands, it moves back. Reach out to touch it, it moves away, it moves back. Marsh gas? Okay. It, it hovers there for a bit. Then it starts to move again. It moves first around them in one direction, then back in the other direction in kind of like an arc, right? just out of arm's length, finally stopping and settling right over the walking path. Remember I said it had an aura? It lit up the walking path in the marsh. Not only did it light up the walking path, it then started to move along it, and the group started following it. It led them a quarter mile out of the marsh along the path to the car, and my grandfather then said, 
it just shot away across the marsh and disappeared. Well, they've been seen many times after that, but that's just one story. That is so incredible. Thank you for telling that. Oh, you're welcome. What do you make of those things? But you think it's a... They're, they're sentient beings. Do you they're think spirit it's the spirits entities. of the dead or something else? Possibly. No one knows what they are. Yeah. Uh, when they had the old masted sailing ships, uh-huh. skipjacks and bug eyes and, mm-hmm. and that used to moor there at uh, Shorter's Wharf Bridge mm-hmm. in my grandfather's time, uh, they were sometimes seen perching on tops on the tops of the masts oh of the ships. God. Yeah, and just settling there. And uh, one time, another time when my uncle, my dad, anyhow, they're coming back in a skiff, a skiff. They call them skiffs, with like with an F. Uh, coming back, and it's on the Blackwater again. They're coming uh, along the Blackwater. And one of these lights just comes out of nowhere and perches right on the bow of the moving skiff. And it scared the livid heck out of my uncle. He picks up a shotgun, and unloads it into this thing, okay? It did, uh, it did, it did a loop-de-loop, like a one-and-a-half gainer off the bow of this moving skiff, and right into the water, disappeared, and that was that. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's, uh, well, I they're say, good stories. Your family members reaching out to touch it, I mean that's pretty crazy. And it moving just far enough that it can't be touched. But it, but with the idea that it might not move, to reach out towards some great mystery like that, I don't. I would not be that courageous to try to touch it. My God. Well, you know, I know that there's a lot of um, along the Chesapeake Bay. There's a hell of a lot of uh, you know UFO lore, oh, yeah. and it's like I, you know, what is that? What is that thing? Well, I'll be happy to share another story with you. I've only had one sighting in my life. And it was in the town of Herlock. Excuse me, on the shore. And I was standing and smoking my pipe. Clear night. No wind. Uh, having a smoke on my sister's back deck in Herlock. Just getting to twilight, but not quite there. Out of the, let me get this right, out of the northwest, northeast, it was north and arc, northeast to southeast, around the town of Hurlick, okay, just slightly out of, it's a small town, about 150 yards out was all. So I'm I'm just watching the sunset, enjoying the, the, the solitude for a few, and all of a sudden, here comes this light, okay? Or craft. Let me say, it wasn't like a light. It was like a craft. I thought it was a jet at the, at the time. Here's the gist of it. It comes out of the northeast, arcs around the town of Herlock, and heads off to the southeast. It took exactly seven or eight seconds before it first appeared to where it disappeared. It's going that fast. Okay. As it passes, it's a wedge. 
is, is a perfect wedge, about the size of a jet fighter in length. No visible cockpit, no glass, just it's metallic, grayish. As it banks around the town of Herluck, I can see the underside of the wedge. There is a modeling, a reddish modeling light underneath the hull. It's flat underneath. There's no exhaust. Dead silence. N not a sound. Okay? That fast. <sighs> Gone. I mean, not even any air sound. Just dead silent. Is it ours? Is it theirs? Are we back engineering? Uh, 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 what's going on? I have no idea. But yes, many and UFOs have been sighted to, on the show. I to add that when I read some of your biography stuff, it said that you're a Vietnam vet. I am. And so you clearly have some knowledge of looking at, you know, planes. And I'm assuming you have a... Oh, so God, seeing yes. this, so seeing this craft, <laughs> it's like you're a much more experienced person than the average Joe seeing some mysterious craft. Well, I don't drink or do drugs either. Mm. Uh, well, maybe occasionally, but <laughs> wow. that's about the extent of it. And at the time, no, I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly mm. sane, if you mm. will. Oh, I believe yeah. it. Man, I love hearing. I couldn't believe it. And I only talk to certain people about it, of course, mm -hmm. but uh, nevertheless, I've been fortunate in, in seeing something like that. Uh, it's the only time in my life I ever have. I have a vision I can share with you, but if only if you want to hear it. Native of course people, I want to hear it. sometimes have visions, yes? Of course I want to hear it. But I didn't seek this vision. This just happened. Because I had approached the chief of the Nal Swaywash in Cambridge, mm -hmm. that group of Nanticoke people, Nanticoke Chop Tank. Uh, pardon me. Now, when you say vision, can you please describe what that means? Because is this, um, what do you need? While I'm speaking, you can be looking at it. Oh, okay. I drew it just after I saw it. So I wouldn't forget. Oh, that. wow. Yes, it does. And when I tell you about it, you'll understand. Look at the. So you're uh, showing me a drawing of a horseshoe-shaped something with a oval egg at its center, and the the horseshoe is pointed down. And that's light coming through a hole in the center. So the center has an oval egg-shaped light at the at the top of this horseshoe pointed down. If you have a camera, you can take a shot of it. I will. So what I'm doing at the time when I have this vision, well, I'd asked my uh, chief, um, I mentioned I'd like to do a vision quest, right? Where you fast and you pray. And you, he said you start out six months at least prior, fasting, praying, tying tobacco bundles and all that. And I'm sorry, I said, that's a lot of hubbub to me. I said, I just want to go out. I want to blend with the natural world, and I'd like to see what happens. I didn't have to go there. I was jogging on the cross-country trail around the high school where I was teaching at the time, and this just happened out of the blue. All of a sudden, right directly in front of me, and about a foot across, it just appears what you're seeing on paper. It is silver white, 
It was beautiful. I could still see everything behind it, just clear as, as looking at you right now, and through the center. So it's just blocking everything else. It had a very thin lemon yellow line all the way around the shape, inside and out. And dead center top of this horseshoe shape with the opening down, the light was brilliant white. In fact, it was so brilliant white that I could not look directly at it. I'm still jogging because I don't want to stop and have it go away. <laughs> it's, it's right there in front of me the whole time I'm jogging for about, I would say it lasted 30 to 45 seconds. Then it faded. What it means? I don't know to this day yet. Well, perhaps it will be made known in time. That brilliant white light I, is incredible to see. And that was my vision. What does it mean? Do you think you are looking into another realm of existence or an internal symbol or just who knows? I don't know. I know a friend of mine found an artifact made of soapstone that was more pointed at the ends on the eastern shore in Denton, Maryland, uh, brown soapstone. Can Had you a describe what is a soapstone exactly? Um, it's a um, highly compressed talc, which was carved into pots and, and pendants and other ornamentation pipes uh, in prehistoric times. And uh, this was a small pendant, about an inch wide, same shape, except a little more pointed at the ends, at the bottom. Uh, with a hole drilled dead center top and very, very close. So did this person who made this pendant have a similar vision? What does it mean? What do the colors mean? Because every color has a meaning. So you're saying and that I've written those down. The vision the that you there. had was very similar to an artifact that a friend found. Yes. Wow. Just shortly after I had this vision. So the question is, did... So the, the thing to muse on is, did the, the original creator of the artifact have a similar vision, or did he just make that and you had a vision tying you into uh, an artifact? I have no idea. Who, who knows? But Red Bear's jaw dropped. We were sitting in his living room, and I was sharing this vision with him mm. at the time. He was Kiowa, or Kiowa, mm. um, Apache. And uh, Red Bear jaw dropped when I showed him this picture. Mm. And he said, hold on. And that's when he went upstairs and got the artifact and brought it down. And well, how did you it feel me. when you saw that artifact? Uh, well, let's just say there's a feeling in the pit of your stomach, mm. right, that just goes through from there on through your body, mm. um, like electricity. Yeah. Mm. It was very close. So, a sensation of such mystery that it's like an overwhelming yeah. bodily, full body sensation. Yeah. Now you, yeah, I'm going to, um, because you mentioned your friend, you said his name was, his uh, name is Red Bear. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, so you're, you know, when you, when I read your name, it's Daniel Firehawk Abbott. It is. Wh how does one, how did you get Firehawk? So here's my question. When someone has a name like that, um, and I guess an, a native name, an indigenous name, is it given to you? 
is it chosen or does it come from vision or does it come from an experience? How do you, how does, how did you get your name? That could happen in any number of ways. Okay. Through dreams and visions. Okay. Through life experiences. Mm. Uh, any number of different ways. Mine came through a dreamer. Not your dream, a dreamer. Not my dream. Mm. Someone I knew and was friends with. Um, she had the same dream over several months, several times. And in that dream, my name was given to her, um, which was then told to several chiefs in the region. Uh, Shawano, that would be Rain Crow at the time, um, Chief Fitchu on the Nauswewash, and one other chief she knew, and I can't remember who that was. They thought about it for about six months. Mm. Um, Before approaching We you? met and got to know each other a little bit. They were determining if that name really did fit me. They decided it did. I am a firemaker, mm. not a firekeeper. Don't let it be confused. I am not a spiritual firekeeper. I am a firemaker. Mm. Um, the ancient um, friction fire methods and a teacher. Uh, Hawk to us is a guide or a mm. teacher, okay? So, um, hence, she told me, came the name Firehawk. And uh, they how decided, you, yes. How did you feel when they told you that name? I was okay with it. Okay. I was okay with it. Um, I felt it applied to me. Mm. Uh, because I was doing, uh, since 90, this was in the late 90s, and uh, I had been doing presentations, tons of them, uh, all the way from federal government down to civic organizations uh, and private individuals, boy, girl scout groups, churches, you name it. <clears throat> and um, so uh, I felt it was okay, and they decided it was okay. And it just so happens the Shawanoe, uh, uh, Rain Crow um, held, and they had planned this, they held a naming ceremony on their mountain at the time in uh, Garrett County, Maryland, western Maryland, extreme western. And so he went. I was invited, of course. There were others who were to receive their names as well. And uh, one of the best three days I've ever spent I mean, we camped, we uh, gifted each other, we feasted, we danced, we, yeah, it was a wonderful time. Incredible. Yeah. Now, I think I would be remiss, is that the right word? I think it's the right word. I would be remiss to not honor your name, and, and can you please share with us how you do do the traditional fire starting? Oh, several methods I do um, that were um, common to this region. And throughout North America, actually, I come to find after examining many artifacts and seeing the bearing blocks in the artifact collections, and archaeologists didn't know what they were. Well, I'll show you one. Uh, they were doing the bow and drill, mm. including prehistoric times. Uh, but there's no documentation for the bow and drill in eastern North America, uh, western North America, but not until later in the 1700s. Uh, but they were using them. Okay, bow and drill goes back thousands of years in mm. other parts of the world. They were using them here. I have the artifacts to prove it, or that are excellent evidence, uh, and couldn't be used for anything else. 
So, um, yeah, I do a hand drill, which they believe is the oldest method known to man. Um, drill and fireboard's all you need. And then I do bow and drill, of course. Uh, five pieces to the fire kit. And then I do, of course, flint and steel. So to someone that doesn't know anything about this, because, you know, I think uh, the modern person can see a lot of this in, like, survival TV shows, like Alone and whatnot. They, they you often see the hand drill. Yeah. So so you basically are taking a piece of wood, and it has to be this, the right tree, right? Softer woods, yeah. And mm -hmm. you are um, spinning it in your palms against another piece of wood with, with kin kindling? Is that how it works? I've never done this. You have your, your tinder. Tinder. Uh, Hair-like plant fiber. Okay. Wide variety of choices. Um, already made into a small bird nest, if you will, mm. and uh, set by your fire kit. And that, that way, when you uh, create your coal, uh, you can transfer it to the tinder bundle and whoosh, whoosh, and you have fire. Uh, so, yeah, I've honed my skills to a fairly high level. So which woods... Um, which tree species in this particular region would one use? Many. Okay. Many. I've used cattail. I've used mm. yucca. I've used pawpaw. I've used sycamore. Mm. My favorite combination uh, for uh, would be uh, for the hand drill mm -hmm. and the bow and drill, actually, uh, is going to be um, a perennial woody stalked plant common throughout eastern North America called horseweed. Okay. It was in our fallow fields in prehistoric times. Is that no the same as horsetail? No. Horsetail okay. is a, is a uh, high silica, brittle, hmm. um, clump style, um, patches of it along uh, the, the eastern waterways, mm -hmm. principally fresh and fresh brackish. Um, that's different than horse weed, which grows in higher elevation, um, open areas. It can cover fallow fields. It's about, uh, it gets to the height of seven, eight feet. Mm. And uh, it has a bottle brush of tiny little white flowers in mm. late summer, sword-like leaves, thin sword-like, all the way up the stalk, thick. Mm. Um uh, and you harvest it when it first starts dying off, and that's what you make your uh, drills out of. It's woody, all right? It has a pith in the center. It's woody. Mullen will make a good drill. Cool. Okay? The woody stalks. Uh, mm. Yeah, it's like, like that. Um, if you can find goldenrod stalks mm. that are uh, large enough, uh, you can make uh, good, good drills out of. My favorite is horseweed on cedar sapwood. Mm. Cedar uh, sapwood, the white, not the purple, that's the heartwood, um, is uh, soft enough. Uh, in fact, it's perfect. So, uh, so horseweed on cedar, all right? There are certain dimensions you have to adhere to within a range, a, sh a small range. And um, then you go at it. I'm so surprised that those um, smaller plants or herbaceous plants, however you want to call it, I'm so surprised they're hard enough to use as the drill. Even cattail stalks, which That's are not so tremendously hard, will work, that especially so on real soft stuff like yucca stalks. And when you said you made the little bird nest of the, um, the kindling, mm -hmm. what, uh, tinder. what 
Tinder. Yeah. What's the difference? Kindling's one step bigger? Kindling's bigger. Bigger, great. Yeah, okay. Kindling would start with toothpick-sized yes, stuff at, yes, uh, yes. under the trees, tips of branches. Yes. And then quarter inch, then half inch, and right. on up. Okay. So for the little bird's nest, what uh, plants were you using for that? Oh, my gosh. Uh, limitless. Okay. Uh, my favorite is going to be cedar bark. Okay. So where I get my fireboard, I also get my uh, tinder. And uh, I just strip, you know, it's hair-like. It hangs mm -hmm, from mm -hmm. the trees. Strip off lengths and take a little bit from each tree. It doesn't hurt the tree uh, if you do that. And uh, just bundle it and uh, carry a couple of tufts all times with you as you're traveling in the bottom of your quiver or your shoulder bag. And you always have, you carry your fire kit, fireboard and drill. You can carry that right in your quiver of arrows. Mm. And fireboard's only about six, eight inches long is all it needs to be. You can get 50 fires out of that one fireboard easy. And then uh, the drill is about as long as an arrow shaft. Okay, bigger uh, than 26, I 27, 8 inches long for the hand drill. And uh, you're set to go with Incredible. the kindling. So you have your fire kit with you at all times. I don't want to be searching right. for dry tinder to make a fire or dry materials to make a fire when it's raining outside. Mm -hmm. I carry my dry materials right with me, my kit. Incredible. Well, I we've been talking for a long time, and this has been incredible. And I don't even think I'm an, I think I'm going to leave the majority of this. This has been amazing. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I guess in closing, so much, in closing, um, I guess uh, just quickly, do you, are there any medicinal plants that you know that have been used for a long time by the Nanticoke? And the Botan, and others. Yes, of course. Oh, but the just, list is endless. Essentially mm -hmm. speaking, every species of plant. Mm. And of course, in the Blue Ridge, the, uh, especially the uh, smoke, uh, Great Smoky Mountain area, <clears throat> greatest number of species of plants in North America. Absolutely. Over 600, I believe. <clears throat> My landlady is a director of a nonprofit that is for the protection of Appalachian medicinal plants, and she's of um, Padawomek ancestry. I actually, well, that's incredible. I, it is incredible. I have great respect for that. And she's taught me a ton. And God love her. I've got, I've got so many herbalist uh, friends and acquaintances, but I've only dealt with herbalism in an empirical bits and bobs kind of way. I've never studied it, but I find it fascinating, all these medicinal uses for plants, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's just so neat. Have you interviewed with her? Oh, yeah. Oh, good. She did one of the best episodes ever. Excellent. And Excellent. Uh, the story of her tribe is quite devastating because the Padawomek were completely annihilated, I think, in like 1666 or something like that. Um, and I know I tried. I want to have someone else from her tribe on. It's about right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, she recounted stories about connecting to um, Pocahontas and whatnot. But, um, yeah, she's an incredible woman. But, uh, yeah, I guess in closing, do, do you still do these lectures, these uh, living history, interpretive history lectures at Jamestown? And if so, how can someone listening who's on the East Coast or going to make a trip through, how can they come and, and learn from you? Interact, take part exactly. in that, because these are interactive presentations. Mm. Um. Yeah, I'm there on Saturdays. Every Saturday uh, Every throughout Saturday. the touring season. Uh, the only time we're closed, barring COVID, of course, uh, would be uh, January, February. 
generally, the park shuts down during that time. But every other month, yeah, we're up and running. Incredible. Uh, especially on weekends. And for me, try to hit me on a Saturday, 10 to 4. Okay. okay. I'll be discussing uh, native, native uh, culture and technologies, mm. prehistoric first contact, mm -hmm. and also uh, interactions with the newcomers, mm. the Tosantasis. Tosantasis. What's that mean? The newcomers. That's strangers. The, the Europeans. I yeah, wanted to ask you that. That's Powhatan. I wanted to ask you that because, <laughs> so, um, I'm from Northern Virginia, and now I live in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And then, you know, one chain over, it's Appalachia. Mm. And in Appalachian mountain talk, an outsider or a stranger, is, I've heard it's called a Jasper. So, a Jasper. Yeah, so uh, my yeah. girlfriend and I laugh that we're Jaspers. Yeah. So here I am today in front of you, and of course, I'm a, I'm a Jasper. Uh. So what, what is the, uh, so the term for an outsider is? But since we're just meeting, uh, no, 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 no. Tosantasis. 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 is one. Tosantasis would be more than one. A bunch of, of outsiders. But just generally strangers are newcomers. God. Okay? Outsiders, if you will. Because in most Native cultures I know, there's only two distinct groups. There's us. And them. And them. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and them are the Tosontasis, okay? Unless you're rating them and you know their names or whatever. But these newcomers from across the ocean, we knew nothing about initially. Of course. They're just strangers. What? And, like, I wonder, again, like I told you the last episode, I put myself into Harriet Tubman's uh, point of view as much as I could. Mm. I'm in my camp, and I'm looking around at the trees, and I'm wondering... How the hell do you navigate at night as you're a fugitive? So here I am wondering what must one of these people, like what would they have thought looking at these, you know, these people with white skin on these strange ships? Like who are these? Like are these aliens? Like what is this thing? Yeah. Where are they from? What do their <laughs> villages look like? You know, well, I wonder what, who the hell are these people? Well, Dr. Helen Roundtree, a really good book I'm reading right now, as a matter of fact, one of her many, uh, on the Powhatan culture. Dr. Helen Roundtree is mm. her name. Yeah, some people have a problem. Uh, she's quite opinionated. Mm. And I think she touches on the mark pretty well, mm. most things. Now, some of the, some of the Pamunkey will argue that, but it, okay. Based on my research... She's pretty close hmm. in, in most respects. Now, she says, she often uses the word in this book, which is Pocahontas Powhatan Opishankano, is the title, Their Lives, I think it is. Hmm. Okay? It's a good book. It's, it's well-written. I like it a lot. I'm, I'm fascinated with it. And I would cons uh, consider that if people wanted to read one of her books, they start with this one. Okay, it lays out the culture pretty good and approaches it from the native standpoint, mm -hmm. how they, they must mm -hmm. have seen things based on the old documents. All right, ethno history, mm -hmm. um, oral history from native people included in that. She does a lot of research. Okay, she uses the word aliens in there wow. <laughs> for the newcomers. Well, for and sure. And they were aliens, of course they really. Were. Of course they were. Uh, Off-worlders, outworlders. Wow. Um, 
she also uses the word tosantosis a lot. Yeah, sure. Okay, the word for their word for the strangers. Um, but uh, yeah, do do uh, explore it at least because it uh, it can familiarize you quite nicely. I think I have seen that book. Yeah, and it was one of many that I've you know browsed around as I'm looking at. Picture uh, the English painting of po- of Mato- mm-hmm. Matoka or mm-hmm. Pocahontas on the cover. Yeah, I know it. Uh, along with down on the bottom, little plates of Opechancano and, mm. and Poetan um, from the lithographs, the early lithographs. Um, well, well laid out, I think. I've enjoyed it so far. Mm. I will check that out. Yeah. Now, before we finish, I can't possibly finish this without asking how much of your language can you speak? How much? Is it Algonquin? Not we much. have... Uh, let me think the guy's name if I can. Oh, jeez. 1799. The people on the shore are going to kill me. Uh, oh, he was contracted, actually, by Thomas Jefferson, hmm. okay, at the time, to record the last vestiges hmm. of the chop tank. Actually, it's... They refer to it as Nanticoke, but the chop tanks were part of the Nanticoke mm-hmm. chiefdom. Um, so I'll think of it when I'm not thinking of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know it so well, too. Okay. Stuffed off the cuff sometimes. And it comes yeah, course, when you're not course. thinking about it. But he came. It was contracted by, uh, uh, by Jefferson. He came. And he visited the last primary village of the Chop Tanks uh, near present-day Secretary on the Chop Tank, uh, just outside of Cambridge, Secretary mm-hmm. Upriver. And uh, he recorded about 200 words. Mm. That's it. Mm. No syntax, mm. which means we have 200 words, mm. which we can't put together into sentences accurately. So mm. same with the Poetan. More like 300 mm. uh, words, mm. but no syntax, except in a couple of passages in Smith's later journals. Uh, so we can't really speak the language Got as it. such. Got Only it. certain words in the language, like in Pohatan, Kintan, Quintan, Kintan, Log Dugout, Kintan. Wingapo. Wingapo, yes. Um, When you, I told you when I got here, that was the one I knew. And thank you. Uh, I'll go with ones people would use, or could use consistently. Uh, Kenath, Kenath, thank you. Kenath. K e n a t h. Kenath. Anash, Anash, a n a c h. It's more like shh, shh, shh. Practice Anash. Uh, A-N-A-C-H. Um, may you farewell. Mm. So I'll say that to you when I get in the car and leave. When you leave. Anash, Anash, Kanath, Anash. Kanath, Anash. Thank anash. you, farewell. And may you farewell. Mm. Because most Native people I know don't say goodbye. Mm. Traditionally, it's too final. Oh, it means death? It, well, it's almost it, like it a means death? goodbye. I'll never see you again. Mm. Too final. Mm. Uh, We would rather say, may you farewell. Mm. Uh, Separate the words. Farewell Mm. is one word. People don't think fair. May you fare Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Until our paths cross again. Mm. 
which hopefully will be soon. Beautiful. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, uh, when I greet people at Jamestown, I normally use my nanticle or nanticoke and, and say, welcome. Mm. Wingopple, welcome. Mm. Close, mm. I, I guess, and not too close. We spoke a different dialect mm. of Algonquin. Mm-hmm. Look at the Quan. I think I mentioned that to you earlier. Uh, hello, it's a good day. Mm. In fact, any day is a good day that we're kicking, mm. right? <laughs> Especially mm-hmm. as we get older. So, yeah, we ani, ani, a n e e, ani, I am. Okay, tont, tont, t u n t, tont, or tont, masquaren. Tont fire, masqualen, like Macintosh, Mm. masqualen. Squalen is capitalized. Ma, M-A-H, is capitalized. Ma, squalen, then they're put together. Masqualen, hawk. Masqualen. Okay, kind of sounds like a hawk. Ma, squalen. All right. And so, uh, I am. Firehook. Mm-hmm. And then I'll repeat it in English so they understand it. Um, and then we do things like, uh, I think I mentioned uh, the first communication between the Kikotan and uh, at the mouth of James and Smith when he invaded their privacy for food. Uh, <laughs> bro- one of Powhatan's bro- uh, sons actually uh, was, was uh, a district chief there mm. in, in Kikotan. And... Uh, Potions, P-O-C-H-I-N-S, Pochins hmm. uh, was his name. And Ka, Katarawansis, Yoa. That's the word, the phrase that started the communication. Ka, Katarawansis, Yoa. And what it means is, hey, that, what do you call that? Mm. How, do, how do you call that? Ka. Mm. And finally, Smith got it, and they began exchanging names for things, and that's how the communication gets yeah. started. So, yeah, words like that are small phrases we have. Um, but um, being able to speak fluently, mm-hmm. no, we can't do that anymore. When I hear you say all this, um, so my mother's from Belgium, mm. and I grew up listening to all my relatives who are basically all still there speaking French. They're they're Wallonians. Mm-hmm. They're from Walloon. Uh, so they're all French speaking. So the fact that I can't speak French fluently is kind of embarrassing to me, and I realize I need to start learning that. And to hear someone like you who um, doesn't even have an intact, you can't even... There's not even the guidebook on how to speak the glory of your ancestral language. Makes me realize how important it is for me having the ability to fully know my family's language, how important that is. We sometimes say, creator still knows. Hmm. So maybe it will be gifted again. Mm. And actually, there are linguists working on resurrecting so cool. certain dialects now. So cool. Using languages like the original Wapanaki, the Lenape, still speak. Some people can still speak fluent Lenape mm. out on the Western reservations mm. primarily, but there are some who still can. 
So they're looking to the base Algonquin language and then looking at certain words we do have and seeing what similarities there are and trying to put it all together. So there's a possibility. We, we may be able to speak maybe a semblance of what was once spoken again sometime in the future. Hmm. For right now, the last woman to speak uh, the Nanticoke dialect of uh, Wapanak era Algonquin uh, died in the early 1800s, hmm. and no one bothered, ever bothered to record the language. Hmm. Uh, so it was lost. It's a... Uh, well, it's just a damn shame, isn't it? It is a damn shame. <laughs> it is a damn shame. So, and as we become more and more of like a global world, I, you know, fear that we'll lose more and more of different little isolated cultures and accents. You know, something I've learned from doing this podcast is, you know, you go to each little island on the Chesapeake Bay, and they have their own accent. You know, on Tillman <laughs> Island, they have a Tillman Island accent i interviewed a waterman there supposedly on tangier they have an entirely different accent and you know i love these little pockets of culture oh gosh yeah yeah it's well, all see, they've, they've been fairly isolated still correct. even in modern times correct and uh of course it was the same in ancient times which is why the diversity mm -hmm. over short distances sometimes mm -hmm. um i was gonna say something about that but it's obviously not incredibly important. So you touched upon it. The diversity is, is incredible, even over short distances, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I think let's finish this thing up. Thank you so much for your time. This has been a You're long Most one. welcome, sir. This has been incredible, and um, thank you. Kanathanash. <laughs> thank you, and may our paths cross again soon. Hell, yes. If you get home and you decide you'd like to do this and expand, in time or touch upon different uh, subject matter. Absolutely. Oh, we can do that. And I gave you a uh, beaver skull from oh, my, my trapping. Oh, my gosh. That's an incredible gift. I'm not trying to put any pressure on you. I hope so much that that ends up in your presentations at Jamestown. I don't, I'm not putting any pressure on you to do that, but it would be so cool if that ended up in the presentations. Well, you see, I will incorporate it because beaver taught us how to build our houses. Mm, of course. Especially in the eastern woodlands. Remember I said domes? Yes. <laughs> and when you are on beaver territory, when you're reading their signs, mm. they are little people. I mean, they make roads. Of course they are. Yeah. But but it, but more so than other some other animals, you can't help but see the beavers as um, colonies of, of little human beings, making houses, making roads, you know, timbering. It's they're astonishing. They're just so neat. They're the architects of the land. Of course. And they create incredibly diverse environments. Wildlife habitat. Which hold water and are not so subject to drought. Mm -hmm. uh, and the multivaried environment then provides new species, Absolutely. new food sources. Now their animals move in. That's remarkable people. <laughs>